that talk is about to begin Hey, 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 come on in Welcome back to Buckeye Talk. It's the big Wednesday pod. Doug Maurice, Nathan Baird, Stephen Means from Cleveland.com, your Ohio State coverage team. We just... Um, we just uh, had like interviews with assistant coaches. So we have some information there and we're going to make this a very heavy assistant coach podcast. We are going to let you know what our tech subscribers said about their favorite assistant coaches during their time as Ohio State fans. I have my top 10 list of my top 10 assistant coaches since I started covering the team in 2005. We'll talk about the 10 assistants on this staff. What makes a great assistant coach? What assistant coaches will and won't be here three to five years from now? at Ohio State. So if you love assistant coaches, maybe you're Gene Smith and you're paying them a million dollars a year and you want to talk about assistant coaches nonstop, this is the podcast for you. But first, we're going to get to questions. If you want to ask questions, be a tech subscriber, 614-350-3351. This is a related assistant coach question. This is not the assistant coach discussion. This is a related question from the 773 I'm interested in what coaches and recruits think about the recruiter rankings in terms of like 247 sports ranking the best recruiters, a best assistant coach recruiters in the country. The Buckeyes have five guys in the top 10. Is that unheard of? What do the coaches think about these rankings if they care at all? I just hear it talked up by a bunch of fans, but it doesn't seem like it means much. Thanks. Keep up the complete and utter boredom saving work. That's from Charlie in the 773. Steven, do you think anybody who matters cares at all about rankings of which assistant coaches are the best recruiters? I think every single one of those assistant coaches care about those rankings because it's a way to it's a way to compete. And Mark, when we talked to Mark Pantoni, he he's obviously said that it's not something we pay attention to every single day, but you know they do think about it at time and time because it's a way to show who's doing their job well and who's not. Nathan, do you have a gut instinct on on? I mean, I will say that that Urban Meyer always said if they if if anybody is ranking anything, Ohio State wants to be at the top of the list. Um, do you think? I mean, and you covered this with basketball at Purdue and, and some football stuff. Like, do you think those guys care? Well, it, it, basketball, football, it, it, it's a very different comparison to make. And I think for football, it matters more to them probably that the whole staff is there piled into the top however many there is, um, compared to if there's one guy who happens to be up there one year and him kind of using that to, to thump his chest to the rest of the group, only because there, there is some nuance to this, right? Because there's one year where you need to go get two five-star running backs. So when you go do that, or four-star running backs, whatever, two big-time running backs. So your running back coach will be pretty high that year. The next year, maybe just for whatever reason, you didn't need a running back that year. You didn't happen to be his his area that he oversees isn't as strong, and now he maybe drops back. It, you can fluctuate year to year in ways that don't necessarily have a lot to do with how well you did recruiting that year if you're an individual coach. But I think it means a lot that Ohio State has so many guys up there because it's not just what they're doing at so many different positions. It's what they're doing at so many different places in the country. You've got guys who are the primary point man in a certain, you know, somebody will have the Southwest, somebody will have the Northeast, and they kind of overlap with the position coach sometimes, and I think you're getting credit in both ways. So that's what I think is important to me for a, a program, that you have so many different guys at so many different positions being recognized up there together. 
it does seem like the kind of thing that will work its way into an assistant coach's bio sometimes, right? Was sure. ranked one of the top 10 recruiters in the nation by 247 Sports in 2017. Like, it's And hard. in the head coach's I mean, bio, too, when, when there's so many of them. What's that? And in the head coach's bio, too, when it's the whole staff recognized in the top 10. I'm wearing a headset instead of usually talking on a big microphone. I don't know if I like it. I might have to change midstream. I can't, I can't hear you guys as well, especially when I'm shouting, and I'm almost always shouting. And I don't want to interrupt my shout flow. I don't know if this is going to work for me. I'll see. If, you guys, the people out there, do I sound different? I'm using the headset mic. There's a microphone right next to my mouth. I don't know if it's good or not. There's a microphone right next to my mouth. Um, it's any time, like the proof is in the pudding in recruiting. It's who you get. But I guarantee you, like, I guarantee when Cincinnati hired Luke Fickle as a head coach that the press release said – Fickle was named one of the best 10 recruiters in the country by 247 Sports three of the last eight years. Or I don't know that to be true, but Luke was on that list sometimes. Like, it is a way to quantify a little bit, right, a little bit that a guy is good at the thing that matters most. And we don't know exactly what 247 Sports arrivals or when sites do that kind of thing. Do you think they get it right, Stephen? Like, do you think it does actually give – a decent estimation of, of which recruiters are doing their job the best? I think so, yeah. And let's look at who, who ended up winning that award last year in Brian Hartline. He brought in four top 100 receivers. And it correlates to, yeah, he's probably the best recruiter in the, in the country. If you look at your position group and you're able to bring in four of the top 100 guys in the country, and then this right now, Tony Offer sits at the top of that list, and he's got two top 100 guys in his own position. Position. So, yeah, especially for a guy who hasn't necessarily done that the last last two years, you know, for him to do that, that's impressive. Getting two running backs already is impressive, but getting two guys who are top 100 guys is another level. And then Kerry Combs, we see the run he is on. And so it, it, it mirrors what is actually going on in the sense that Ohio State is actually dominating the recruiting rankings in their class. And so you're seeing a lot of the guys who are the reasons why that are happening. It's mirrored in those recruiter rankings. Let's talk a little more recruiting here for a second. Corey Foreman from Clemson um, decommitted from Clemson's 2021 class this week. Nathan, you did the post at Cleveland.com for us. And again, this is the kind of thing, it's an, it's an indication of like how popular um, recruiting is. We get a constant ranking at Cleveland.com of like what are the most popular stories in a day in the last five minutes. You, could, you can look at anything. And typically the most popular stories are the Browns and then other sports stuff and then crime. Um, lately, the most popular stories are coronavirus and then the Browns. A Clemson guy decommitting was one of the 15 most popular stories at Cleveland.com on a day when the world continues to be upside down. So people really care about this kind of thing. First, Nathan, we're not an expert on this, but like, what do you think it means for Clemson? First of all, you know, we did a whole podcast on Ohio State and Clemson two weeks ago. What's it mean for Clemson to lose this guy? Did you get a sense from just the announcement and, and where Clemson is that's kind of a big deal for them or that they can handle this? Well, I think it's an indication of – it speaks to something that both Mark Pantone said to us recently and something that I think it was Tony Alford said again today that – um, you don't pat yourself on the back too much this early in recruiting because it has to you you have to keep it up all the way to to signing day and that's not even any kind of indication that they did something wrong here 
or that um, that there was something, some way for them to persuade Foreman to stay. From what he told the um, Grace Rayner from the Athletic, who broke the news, I don't know if he told her, but that was what she reported um, that geography had something to do with it here that he wanted to stay on the west coast or wanted something closer to home so i i don't know in, in those situations if that's true i don't know that it necessarily says a lot about a program i mean they took their best shot at bringing in the number one recruit in the country he committed and then he had second thoughts i mean people are free to do that i don't know if i would take one decision and and make it mean more than that when um when we were at the fiesta bowl for ohio state clemson uh, and again, I'm still working on some of this stuff in terms of like schools recruiting California. Um, Clemson was kind of new out there. Ohio State has made much more of a, of a concerted effort in California the past two or three classes or so. Clemson was just kind of sorting to start to, to stick its toe in the Pacific Ocean a little bit. Um, they got DJ Ugalele in the last class at quarterback, um, but that was kind of new for them. So I think Clemson, which we've talked about, has built its program not necessarily with top one or two recruiting classes, but by having top 10 recruiting classes and they then develop guys. They are now trying to sort of reap the rewards of being Clemson. And so sometimes I think, and I think this happens to Ohio State sometimes, I think sometimes you end up taking a commit from like a super high profile guy because he's really talented and he thinks he wants to go play like for the best team. So you take him and then it's like, Oh, like, is this really a fit? Does he really want to come here? I don't know anything about the Corey Foreman recruitment, but that's Steven. That's like what it feels like to me that like Clemson is realizing we're really famous right now. A kid in California who's one of the top five kids in the country wants to come here but then maybe it didn't work out. I feel like maybe it was one of those commitments that was kind of on the surface. He was almost the tail end of that high. You mentioned DJ Ukulele, but also he was one of those commitments that they got off of their junior day that pushed them above Ohio State for about a month a month or so back in January. And he was, he was like the tail end of that. He was their only five-star guy. He's the thing that pushed them over top, losing him. Now they're down to number four. And now maybe he's coming down off the high. Maybe they're coming down off the high. But he got the he got the tiger tattoo and everything and seemed all in and yeah maybe he's rethinking some things now that that high of Clemson had won 29 straight games in a row and it seemed like they were all of a sudden getting all these top 25 players in the country and yeah now maybe he just wants to re- rethink some things but in the moment it just seemed like he was a part of that high Clemson was on and landing recruits. I have a terrible memory, but Ohio State got a verbal commitment at like halftime of the national championship game or something, or maybe the Alabama game several years ago and from a kid, I think it was Kareem Walker who ended up at Michigan. It was like, they took it. It was like, okay. And then like, he didn't end up in the class and it was like, you know, it felt like one of those things like, Oh, cool. Ohio state's really good. I'll commit there. And then it's like everybody after the fact, it's sort of like, is this really the thing that we all want? So I think that does happen sometimes, but then the questions that immediately people came up with, um, uh, this is uh, oh I don't have the I don't have the area code I cut it off my bad but the question is Corey Foreman decommitted from Clemson I want to get your thoughts on the possible Thanos of recruiting classes that Ohio State may have for 2021 if we can get Corey Foreman away from Clemson and then from the 843 will Corey Foreman become the next target for the 2021 class I'm sure everyone's going to want to know um, I will say this I would I I checked around a little bit. Um, 
the kid said he decommitted because Clemson was too far away from California. Ohio State is really no closer than Clemson is. I think Ohio State would consider itself a long shot at this point. When things get back to normal, they might they might get a visit. Um, but if you are trying to count Corey Foreman um, in this 2021 class as like the next monster recruit, that's not what Ohio State is doing at the moment. So, you know, they'll investigate everybody and they'll take elite talent if elite talent is interested. But I don't think you want to connect those dots right now because that is that's not where ohio state is with foreman at the moment it's one of the advantages of putting yourself in the position that ohio state's put itself in right that you can lock up this many talented guys at so many different positions that when something like this happens it maybe plausibly puts you in position to go put extra resources towards it put extra time towards it kind of roll out the red carpet i suppose the only different the only other problem here being that they are running out of space both in terms of total scholarships and positionally right i mean they've already got two defensive end commitments for this class and a defensive line commitment on top of that uh, i don't know how many more scholarships they can put towards that i think foreman would be the kind of player you'd make that exception for as we've talked about with some of the other five stars that go on after but it does get tough at this stage along those lines and i forgot to mention this off the top there i mean honestly there still is so much stinking news with ohio state football i mean it has been we didn't get to watch spring practices and we didn't get to watch the spring game but like god man there's just stuff constantly so again we talked to these seven different assistant coaches everybody except madison barnes and dennis we talked to in three different groups uh on wednesday but then also jalen gill put himself in the portal wednesday and i forgot to mention that off the top letterman row reported it originally we have confirmed that that is the case and that will bring Ohio State's scholarship count at the moment from 87 to 86. They need to be at 85 by the time the season starts. Our count of 86 is including C.J. Saunders and Justin Hilliard on sixth years. And again, I'm not sure either of those things is 100% locked in. But taking Jalen Gill out of this receiver room, Nathan, what did you think of that news on Wednesday? This is a former five-star recruit from the Columbus suburbs. Actually, he's from the high school that my daughter now goes to. Um, what did you think of that, Nathan? Well, it certainly wasn't surprising. Um, you know, all along, when we've asked about the scholarship situation, the, the coaches have said that has a way of working itself out. And this is kind of how it happens, right? I mean, a guy, I know he's only going into his third year, um, only going to be a redshirt sophomore in the fall, but had a pretty limited role last year. And when the no coaches role. talk about this team, no yeah, role. yeah, no right. Role. Right. He was six catches in six games. Sure. Right. Um, right. And I think especially once we saw what happened with Garrett Wilson, that was probably the final um, straw for where Jalen Gill's career could go here, just because I don't he's an inside receiver. Right. And where 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 when was he going to see the field? Not only that, but you've got other guys, whether it's Jackson Smith and Jigma, whether it's Mookie Cooper, other guys that they've been working out at the slot. It's just getting really full there. And I don't. I don't blame him. I mean, it's it's one of those things where you come here, you take your shot, and then two years in, you look around and you say, this is probably not the place where I have the best chance to play going forward. Steven, that's your guy, Garrett Wilson, the number one pick for the fighting Steven Means is in the spring game. Do you think that was the last straw for Jalen Gill when a talent like Garrett Wilson, who's a year younger than you, moves to your position? 
Yeah, it does because now it, it is one because the first was the fact that Ryan Day came out after that first practice and said they did not have an option, and that's directed at Jalen Gill directly that that we didn't have an option for another H back last year, which is why KJ Hill caught all the snaps there. And then you come in first day and Garrett Wilson is already there. And at least had there been a spring practice, you maybe could have fought him off and tried to go in the field. But now that's that's gone. It's clearly not a surprise. He doesn't even he won't have a chance to even try to fight Garrett Wilson off of his spot at this point. So seeing Garrett Wilson, not it's not like that was four or five practices in. That's first practice of the, of the spring. You see a guy who's younger than you, who has already proven himself as a receiver at Ohio State in your position. Yeah, I think the the writing was already on the wall for Jalen Gill. He wasn't going to fight him off. I mean, like we can, I mean, yeah, he, I he wasn't going to fight off Garrett Wilson. I mean, he maybe could have carved a niche for himself as the second slot guy, right? In a fight with Jackson Smith and the Jigba. Yeah. But they just did not feel compelled to get him on the field last year. Well, and again, we saw the opportunity. They didn't really have a backup H. They used two tight ends more often, but KJ Hill basically was their only H back last year. Um, and I think I, this is a smart point. Other people have made it, but I, I didn't have a chance to read it yet. But Colin Hill from uh, 11 Warriors has a headline about the idea that this, the departure of Jalen Gill and the moving to the slot for Garrett Wilson is like the final end of the Urban Meyer H-back. And that now we are in the world of the Ryan Day H-back. And I think we were partly there already. K.J. Hill is certainly more of that kind of urban uh is more of an Orion Day pass catcher slot receiver but any idea of like that your slot guy is going to be used in the run game Paris Campbell was a high school running back who was converted to H at Ohio State and that transition worked both DeMario McCall and Jalen Gill were high school running backs that Ohio State recruited to play H and they got lost in the shuffle Dontre Wilson got lost a little bit that way too and so I think they've been moving this way but officially, and I think this is Colin's point, like this is it. Slot receivers at Ohio State are receivers. They yeah, are not hybrids. They yeah. are not kind of like running backs. They do not need to be involved in the run game. They are taking Garrett Wilson, who is as good as any pure receiver on this team, who's a five-star outside receiver, and putting him in the slot – and then a guy like Jalen Gill sees the writing on the wall. So I do think it's a it's a fundamental change in the offense. But we have a, a comment from the 937 that I want to get both of you to react to. Count me in the group that thinks Garrett Wilson in the slot makes zero sense. I like slot guys to do something after the catch. Garrett Wilson does all his greatness before the catch. He high points the football better than any Ohio State receiver we've ever seen. All of that is going to go to waste on slants and drags. I'm sure he'll still have success because he's more athletic than 99% of the defenses he'll face, but it doesn't mean it's the right move. We're taking Larry Fitzgerald and putting him in the slot. Rondale Moore is a prototypical slot. Um, Garrett Wilson is nothing like Moore. The only route that I think will even remotely showcase Wilson's true ability from the slot is a slot fade. The move will work because everything works when you're more talented than the competition, but this is not the right move from the 937. Very interesting football point. Nathan, what is your reaction to that texter? Well, I don't know if we've really gotten to see yet what Garrett Wilson does after the catch. I don't know. I don't remember a lot of instances last year where that was necessarily a skill set, a skill set he really got to show off. Um, now, maybe that is maybe that's what they're saying. Maybe that's kind of the, the damning um, uh, praise or, or whatever of it. But I, I also think there's something we said for 
it's not just about what's best for him. It could be a decision that's made by what's best for the whole position group. Um, I will say that when we asked Brian Hartline about it today, I asked Brian Hartline about it today, he didn't um, explode quite the way that Ryan Day did. Um, so maybe he's taking a little bit more guarded of approach to it too, but he, he did speak at the end of the day positively about what he thinks Garrett Wilson could do in that position. He didn't explode, but he did say, yeah, I had that idea last year. Yeah. I mean, he did, first yeah. of all, I think he like sort of took credit, which he should, it's his position room, but he said he was thinking about Garrett Wilson as a slot receiver a year ago. And then he said that like Ryan Day sort of came to him and said like, what do you think? And I, I don't think he said specifically like wh- what the conversation was with Ryan Day, but I'm imagining it was the conversation of, dude, you recruited so many receivers, how in the heck are we going to get them all on the field? Right. And it seems like they came to this decision very quickly. I, I, I thought Hartline, I mean, nobody in the order of effusiveness about Garrett Wilson and the slot. Maybe Stephen Means is number one because he's the number one pick on the fighting Stephen Meanses. I'm number two because I tried to hug Garrett Wilson in McDonald's to celebrate his move to the slot. Ryan Day is number three, and Brian Hartline is number four. But I still, I thought Ryan, I thought Brian Hartline was more like, yeah, this makes total sense. Like I, I, he wasn't like going crazy, but I almost took it as like he thought it was sort of like an obvious thing. And, like, of course it's going to work. Steven, what did you think of the way Hartline talked about the Garrett Wilson slot move today? I, I think they looked at his highlight tape and saw him. As, I think he's I, – I believe him that he saw him. As, I'm actually, like, watching his highlight tape as we're sitting here talking about this. There's a lot of catches that come from the slot is where he's running these routes from. And it, and the way – we all saw we can do catching deep balls. But I'm seeing a lot of the things here that can translate at the next level for him. Lake Travis was using him in the slot. They use him outside, but which is usually what you do when you have a superstar receiver like this, especially at the high school level. But I think they saw some things that he would do in the slot with Lake Travis, which has been known to have some NFL players come through there. And, you know, they're trying to apply it to Ohio State here. Like, he, I'm, as we're talking, he's catching a touchdown pass out of the slot. So I don't know if it limits him. I think it opens him up a little bit because last year it was basically about just him having the strong hands and catching deep balls while now they're – he's got all these different ways that he can catch the ball for Ohio state because the opportunity is available. I do. I do think sometimes he can jump. I, I was looking at something and like the other day I was looking at the, at the still photos of his catch against Clemson. He is like, someone won an award. Yeah. Somebody like won third place in like best West court, West coast sports photo or something. And it was a photo of Garrett Wilson, like parallel to the ground, yeah. six feet in the air. The Fiesta Bowl retweeted it. That's that's how I saw it because I follow the Fiesta Bowl because they have that weird sun mascot that I hate, that I have nightmares about, that I want to stab with an ice pick. So I follow it so I can I can hate watch the Fiesta Bowl Twitter account. He is not big. He's six feet tall. Mm-hmm. Julian Fleming is 6'2", Jamison Williams is 6'2", G. Scott is 6'3", Jalen Harris is 6'5". Garrett Wilson is 6'193". And when Ryan Day, when we, when we first saw him the first day in the slot, and I asked Ryan Day about it, and he talked about it, he talked a lot about Garrett Wilson's short area quickness. He talked a lot about his ability as a route runner to run two-way routes in the slot. He thought he had a lot of attributes 
that do fit slot receiver. And so for our texture whose contention is like, it feels, you know, this is a big time down the field receiver and you're not going to play to his strengths in the slot. He He's, he's only six feet tall, but he's not, you know, big play. He's not Randy Moss, right? So, I actually think there's a lot of things. I think Garrett Wilson could succeed anywhere. I mean, if you kept him outside, I think that'd be great. But but I think I think it makes a lot of sense. Nathan, I think the texture makes a great point, and it's hard sometimes with Ohio State, which is why it's hard to criticize them, because it's like they do stuff, and it's like, well, everything works. Everything works because you have ludicrous talent. But I, I do not think this is a mistake. I do not think they're going to miss out by having Garrett Wilson inside instead of outside. I mean, to me, it's about which of these guys, which of all of these receivers potentially creates the most mismatches for another team. And I think that might be Garrett Wilson, and that's why I think he's really interesting in that spot because you line him up against a linebacker, that's trouble. You put a smaller – I know, again, he's not huge, but you put a smaller um, uh, conventional nickel corner on him, uh, slot corner on him, that's trouble because of what he can do, his leaping ability, those sorts of things. I just feel like any way that you try to neutralize him with the defense, I feel like he may have an answer that some of these other guys don't, or at least don't have yet that we haven't seen, especially this freshman group. I don't know that necessarily, um, now obviously Mooka Cooper is a long-term slot guy, but I don't know that Jackson Smith and Jigba can do some of those things. Um, I know that from what I saw last year against Garrett Wilson, why that could be a problem for, for different kinds of defenders. It's funny, It's as much as I've begged for a little slot receiver, Rondale Moore, again, we have to mention his name every podcast if we can, K.J. Hamler at Penn State, who we, we've seen firsthand what K.J. Hamler can do. He's burned Ohio State. Um, he's projected potentially as a second or third round pick in this draft. Um, and Mookie Cooper is that guy. And it, I'll be curious to see what happens with Mookie Cooper because here's the whole point. I think sometimes it's just like a basketball team. You don't you don't want all three and D wings. You don't want all six guys who are the same. You don't want eight receivers who are all the same guy. So I like the idea that maybe there is still room. Mookie Cooper to me fits more of that traditional slot guy that we're talking about, um, like Rondé Amora, KJ Hamler. And and if they went and recruited him, Brian Hartline went and picked him. So they must think there is still room for a guy like that, but they also think there's room for a guy like Garrett Wilson in the slot. I think variety in your receiver room is good, and I think the variety in the matchups, that if you somehow wind up in a place where, whether it's this year or next year, you're rotating Garrett Wilson and Mookie Cooper as your two slots, those are two completely different matchups for a defense. And from series to series, or maybe even play to play, you end up having to play the Ohio State offense differently. So... I like it. I think it's possible that because Garrett Wilson has great leaping ability, we, we maybe misread him as an outside guy, but it's nothing, it's nothing that I would be worried about. And I, and I do think it's going to work. Um, and best of luck to Jalen Gill. Um, it's not often that like guys rated that high at Ohio state just kind of don't hit, but it does happen sometimes. So he, he probably, he certainly has an opportunity to go to a place who knows where he's going to go. But there's a bunch of places that he could go that he'll be the most talented guy in the room when he gets there. And so hopefully he finds a place where he can play and he can uh, do what he wants to do. I'm listening to myself breathe in the headphone. It's making me nervous that everyone else is listening to me breathe. So we're going to take a quick break. I'm going to throw this headphone set in the trash, and I'm going to go back to my normal microphone and get at ease with myself, and then we will be right back on Buckeye Talk. All right, back on Buckeye Talk. I feel like myself again. Oh, man. 
It's freaking myself out. Um, no more of that headset. If you want to buy it, you can text me and I'll send it to you. Hey, text me, 614-350-3315. Be a friend of the pod. I just cut some commercials uh, because we are uh, now having a voluntary subscription thing at cleveland.com for the whole website to read like all of our great coronavirus coverage, really in-depth stuff, uh, all of our news coverage. So you might be hearing those dropped in the podcast. Um, so we just, I just, we just, we just love you guys. I don't know. Can I can, can I love you if I can't see you? Cause I love you. All right. Five, eight, five. We're going to do some Justin Fields questions here before we get into second half of the pod assistant coach central from the five, eight, five, because of the absurd amount of Buckeye games on YouTube, I've been watching Justin Fields in those second half scenarios last year at times. Um, and to see it, it's almost head scratching. There are big leads. The defense is crushing everything, but Justin Fields is still in the game. Do we think that Fields plays less in the third and fourth quarters this season as he will run more and we will want to save mileage? Or is this a we-need-Fields-all-the-time kind of situation with uncertainty at running back, uh, et cetera? I'd love to not have an official backup till late in the year and see tons of Stroud and Miller against Indiana and Illinois, et cetera, or just one of them starts with all non-redshirted underclassmen against Rutgers. So they want to do the, uh, the, the plan that we've talked about before. Leave the good players at home for Rutgers. Um, Nathan, your instinct, I want to get back then. I want to backtrack a little bit on how he was used last year. But do you expect that anything will change dramatically this year about how Justin Fields is used and how he is used in the second half of blowouts? Well, I think on whole, he'll play more in the third and fourth quarter in 2020 because I think Ohio State is going to have games that are competitive more into the third and and late third and into the fourth quarter than they did in 2019. I think you're probably going to get less of those catastrophic first half blowouts that you did last season. Um, Now, in games where those scenarios play out, would he potentially come out of the game earlier? Uh, Maybe. I would just say that I think Ryan Day, as much as he was aggressive in how he called games sometimes, I think that was one area where he was a little bit more conservative. I think he also, as we was well-documented, didn't have – it might have been different if he had a backup that he really, really, really trusted, um, which wasn't the case. And I don't know if we'll get to that point this fall – at least to start the season, those first couple games with the the freshmen, just because as we talked about recently on the pod, them missing the whole spring, I think is a, a big loss for getting them ready for the fall. So um, I, I think, I don't know that I'll, I'll, it'll be a big difference. I know that we've talked before about whether even one play too much of the Penn state game or what this readers um, or this texter is referencing just being a, a kind of a, a season long thing. But I, I think Ryan Day is just wants to make sure the game is absolutely put away before he pulls Justin Fields. And I think as much as he wants to protect him, it's part of playing football. He wants to win the game too. Beyond, beyond, well, see, because the thing of it is, really, you said having a, a backup that you trust. I mean, in the second half of these games, it, they have no chance of losing it, right? I mean, it's not you cannot trust the backup, and he's still not going to be able to do enough to screw you up. When you're up 45 to seven in the third quarter at Nebraska, I can see pulling him. I think there were just some games that when you look back at them, they look like they were more severe than maybe they were, you know, the, the Michigan state game, um, the first Wisconsin game, the separation in those scores at the end is, is looks like it was a healthier, a uh, bigger gap than maybe it was in real time as you're playing the end of the third start of the fourth quarter. I can see, 
why Ryan Day maybe had either respect for the opponent or just enough concern that he, he left him in for another series, whatever. But I, I get, I just feel like that's that that does seem to be from what we've seen, the one season we've seen. That's part of how Ryan Day thinks. That's how he's gonna. Um, that's how he is going to control a football game. That's how he. That's how he's comfortable doing it. Um, I don't know. Maybe maybe you're right. Maybe it doesn't necessarily have as much to do with the, the second guy down the line. But I think that's he. He likes to know that the thing is absolutely put away before he turns things over to somebody else. I, I, I think I, some of that also had to do with the fact that this was Justin Fields' first year as a starting quarterback. So he was trying to get him as many reps as possible, especially early in the season. I think this, like those, for, before this that bye week that comes up, the only game where he plays more than a series tops. And in, in the second half is going to be that Oregon game. I think we can all agree on that, especially with this being year two. And those other three games are going to be prime opportunities to get that backup quarterback ready, whoever that is, just in case something happens. I, I do think because you can spin it the opposite way. Yes, he would have had more trust in Chug or Gunner Hoke, but actually he has more of a reason to want to see Jack Miller and C.J. Stroud on the field. Because last sure, year yeah. – the backups were just the backups. And the only time that they were going to be an issue was if Justin Fields got hurt and then they needed those guys to play. This year, the backups are the future starters. So I actually think, Stephen, do you think it might give him more reason to take Justin Fields out because it's not only about Justin Fields. It's also, man, I got to see what CJ and Jack can do. No, I think that – exactly. I think Ryan Day's already an aggressive coach. He's going to be as aggressive. He said that he's going to be aggressive in the first half. And if he, they're up and it's in a comfortable situation, that's more opportunities to get one of, one of those two guys game reps that, they'll, that, that they're going to need because they are – one of those two guys is going to be the starter in the future. So, yeah, I do think there is going to be more reason for cause, especially in those first four games out for – Three out of those four games, minus the Oregon game, obviously, where they're going to be looking for reasons to put C.J. Stroud or Jack Miller on the field. Nathan, so how does how does the Heisman factor in? I do think the Heisman may be a factor. I think he saw last year that um, you know someone like J.K. Dobbins. I don't know that he would have been able to force his way into that top four, but he would have had maybe a better chance if he hadn't had to to give up so many reps early in the season quarterback running back being a slightly different situation. I think the other thing that's going to affect this though, is this kind of nebulous thing that Ryan day is chasing. Every coach is chasing. That's at the top of the rankings. And that's the, the, the committee's concept of game control. That's the other thing you have to remember here is there's something to be said for putting kind of an exclamation point on that dominance. It's not necessarily staying in and running up the score. Ohio State was running up the score in the first half on a couple occasions last year, which worked out well for them. But there is something to be said for putting, you know, leaving no doubt as to how, who controlled a game before you turn it over to the next group um, so that the committee sees that and keeps, when it's, when they start voting, that's part of what they, whether they admit it or not, that is going to be something that factors into their decision. But I think the Heisman probably will too, because I think they know that this is a, a special opportunity here last year you had three different guys who were in the mix and and who deserved it more and ryan day was hesitant to really talk about that it's going to be a, a showcase for justin fields in 2020 so i've gone on record in the past ari and i had blowouts about this in the past of this like should your starting quarterback come out of the game or not he and i fought about braxton miller in that regard a lot and i hate it i i hate i, I said that before i hate the yanking the starting quarterback conversation because it's just it, it, I, I hate it right up until the point until it changes your season and it changed their season last year I think Ryan Day so far so far as 
running the Ohio State football program, I mean, like, I think we would all give Ryan Day an A. I think Ryan Day might have, like, a 98.7 grade point average. Like, he's done so much right. I think his biggest mistake so far is leaving Justin Fields in the Penn State game and calling a fourth down play that left even a 1% chance for Justin Fields to be in danger. And he does not admit that because I tried to put him on the spot about that, and he was like, nope, I'd do it again. And I think that's crazy. But do you think that will factor in? Steven, would you have that in the back of your head at all if you were Ryan Day that Justin Fields not being 100% absolutely affected the end of Ohio State season and that the reason he wasn't 100% is because that he was in the game in the final minutes of a multiple-score Penn State game when he, you easily could have had the backup quarterback in there. Should that factor into what Ryan Day does with Justin Fields in 2020? It is, but it's going to factor into the play calling, which I think is what he was alluding to. It wasn't the fact that he was out there is why he got hurt. He got hurt because they called the play they shouldn't have called. They should have just handed the ball off instead of trying to make a guy that we know is going to try to make a play make a play. But he and didn't so say that, that. He didn't admit to no, that. He, he said, like, Justin, basically Justin should have thrown it away. He didn't, right? Yeah. Am I remembering that wrong? It's not like Ryan Day has said, well, no, we he didn't. Yeah, no, he didn't, he, he, yeah, he didn't take ownership of knowing that like, you have a quarterback who's going to try to make a play instead of throwing the ball away, which he called his favorite play that Justin Fields did last year. But I do think he has to take that into consideration. If you, you, one, yeah, you take him out the game if it's time to take him out of the game, especially against the Bowling Greens and the Buffaloes of the world. But if you're going to keep him out there, don't put him in a position where he's going to get hurt. Hand the ball off. I think I think that's what he's thinking about. You said, Stephen, that you think he'll be in after he'll be out after the first series of the second half in the early games. I think you gotta play. I think you have to play him through the third quarter. I think starting quarterbacks in almost any situation should play through the third quarter, especially if they're a Heisman candidate, and then you take him out for the fourth. I do think sometimes they will take him out in the middle of the third, but I also think at some point if you're taking him out. I mean, there's only two crazy, awful non-conference games in Buffalo and Bowling Green. Oregon's going to be competitive, and then you can't control who you play in your conference. But um, I'll be curious how they manage it. I won't want to talk about it too much, but I still – I don't know. Nathan, I'm still just stunned by that idea that Ryan Day doesn't think he he made a mistake with the Penn State thing. I just – I thought that was one of those things when whenever I asked him that sort of after the season. I think I asked it maybe like in the first press conference – a month later after the Fiesta Bowl loss, I really thought he was going to say one of those, you know, looking back, I probably should have, and he didn't do that at all. I'm still stunned by that. You know, it's not like one of the criticisms that we would have had of Justin Fields last season wasn't that he held on to the ball a little bit too long at times. Actually, I said that in a really double negative backwards way. That was, I think, something that you would say about Justin Fields last year, that he, there were times where maybe he, he didn't throw it away as quickly as, as Ryan Day would have liked, as quickly as it would have been a positive thing for the Ohio State offense. So why that isn't factored into the play that you're calling there, um, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I, I agree with you. I think that is probably one of the few things that you would put in the um, – as a mark against Ryan Day for for last season, especially because of the timing and the ramifications that it led to. Sometimes it's, is it unfair to grade it that harshly in kind of retrospect? I, I don't know, but I mean, the, the, the consequences were apparent when the way that rest of the season played out. In conclusion, I think looking back, 
He had to play deep into some games last year because he was still new. He needed the reps more than anybody. No quarterback needed reps on the roster more than Justin Fields. In 2020, that's not going to be the case. Jack Miller and C.J. Stroud, the reps are going to be more valuable to them than they will be to Justin Fields. So I think that is a huge difference. I think starting quarterbacks have to play. Where I mean, the games are fun, and it's no fun to work all week and then come out and only get to play a half. So I think you do have to play those guys. Um, I think the Heisman will factor in. So my expectation is most of the time, Justin Fields will get three quarters and then Jack and CJ will split the fourth quarter. And, and maybe if it's 70 to nothing instead of 35 to nothing, then maybe Justin Fields comes out in the middle of the third. But I do think the Heisman is a factor. And I do think Ryan Day, to some small degree, will have that Penn State thing in the back of his head. Because as much as I'm in favor of keeping starting quarterbacks in, because they earn the right to put up huge stats and they earn the right to be on the field. And we're not talking about practice. We're talking about games as much as I'll be in favor of all of that to have Justin Fields in that situation against Penn state to get hurt on that play was bonkers. And I think even if Friday, maybe Ryan day is never going to, isn't going to think about that for the rest of his life. I will on his behalf. I'll think about it. Cause I think it was crazy. Second, Justin Fields question from the nine one Oh, Justin Fields said his transfer to Ohio State was a business decision. Does his success from last year, along with the fact that he said it was a great decision to come to Ohio State, does that help in any way with Ohio State recruiting? So when we were on this call on Wednesday with the assistant coaches, one of the other writers was asking a lot of questions about how does the NFL factor in recruiting and how much do you talk about it and that kind of thing. Steven, we'll start with you. How much do you think something like this, that Justin Fields didn't really have a connection to Ohio State, he's a Georgia kid, but he said, I'm making a business decision, and so far he went undefeated and, make the, and made the playoff and was a Heisman finalist, and now he's the Heisman co-favorite for this year. How does that do anything for Ohio State down the line with the next guy? It should make getting quarterbacks a uh- I don't want to say easy, but a simpler thing to do because people are going to equate that at the quarterback position here the same way they do with the defensive line position or the defensive back position as long as Larry Johnson and Kerry Combs are here. It's There's going to be plenty of five-star quarterbacks who go, I saw what Ryan Day was able to do for Dwayne Haskins or Justin Fields, and I want that same thing. Or if, And that's the recruiting trail. If they're ever in this position again where – the quarterback room is a mess and there is a five or five star guy or a four star guy who lost a job somewhere else and wants to, wants to transfer elsewhere. Their Ohio state's going to be at the top of their list because of what they've already seen. Justin Fields have that level of success. And Ryan day is, is starting to build a reputation with for himself as a developer, a quarterback whisperer, I, I guess you can call him at the college football level. So when these transfers do happen or these, five-star quarterbacks do come around, Ohio State's name is always going to be in the mix because of it. Nathan, to split hairs on this, do you think there is a difference between how it would affect high school recruiting for Ohio State versus how it would affect guys who are considering a transfer to Ohio State? And do you think it is quarterback-specific or that it could be a general thing that business decision guys would be thinking about Ohio State? Well, as much as the coaching staff probably doesn't want to admit it, I think anybody who is 
signing to be a quarterback at Ohio State is making a business decision, right? I mean, the level that they're trying to recruit at, the guys they're going after, Stroud, Miller, um, McCord, uh, these are guys who already are, are thinking about what a professional future might look like for their position, as I, I guess there are guys in a lot of position. But I, I think it's a recruiting, or I think it's a business decision in some way for a lot of those guys, no matter what the relationships are. I think, the, you know, there wasn't a predecessor necessarily to Justin Fields as the transfer in starting quarterback to Ohio State that helped him make that decision. I think he looked at Ohio state where there was no Dwayne Dwayne. Yeah. Dwayne was, he was friends with Dwayne. He shared, he, yeah. he has a connection to Dwayne. Don't they both yeah, work but, with Quincy I mean, Avery? And, and Dwayne wasn't a transfer. With, no. Well, no, oh, but no, no, I just, he, he said, yeah, but in it's, terms it's of connection like, with, he saw, this is what Ryan day did for Dwayne Haskins. And I believe Ryan day can do that. Right. Yeah. I'm not I saying that. that. All I'm saying is, is, all I'm saying is that, I don't know that Justin Fields has an influence on the next transfer because there wasn't a transfer that influenced his decision at Ohio State. I mean, he saw what Ohio State is. He saw what Ohio State can be specifically for a quarterback, but he saw what other talent was at Ohio State, which there will always kind of be a, a, a pretty big mountain of talent at Ohio State, even if there isn't a great quarterback situation in a given year, which is also going to be rare, I think. But he saw an opportunity to step right in, and if that opportunity – presents itself in the future I think whatever the best transfer quarterback that's out there will probably give Ohio State a strong look if not end up coming here because those the opportunity that Justin Fields stepped into last year was rare not just for Ohio State but for him like for him to just be able to go right in right away and and be the quarterback of a a team that talented on both sides of the ball was a, a rare opportunity among all the schools that he was considering as a as a transfer so I actually think it may end up being a having more influence just on the quarterback position in general and I think really his his play is what influences that still more than anything more than thinking of it as a as a business decision the fact that he came here and had success um that makes the biggest impact and, and people see what a an athlete like him can potentially do in this offense I think also makes an impact I do think, like, you look at, like, Jalen Hurts, and I understand what you're saying, Nathan. It's not necessarily that a transfer came and had the success. It's just, like, do you think you can go to Ohio State and be a great quarterback and have success? Jalen Hurts picked Oklahoma because of what Kyler Murray and Baker Mayfield did. He didn't pick it because Kyler Murray and Baker Mayfield both happened to be transfers, although they had to sit out a year. He just thought, well, look at what Lincoln Riley does. Plug me into that Lincoln Riley system. I think if Ohio State down the line – gets into a situation where they need a plug-and-play transfer quarterback. You know, Justin Fields will help, but Dwayne Haskins helped, and Ryan Day's status as a quarterback developer helped. But I do think I do think the business decision aspect of it, as much as, for instance, both Bosa's and Chase Young and Dwayne Haskins, there were guys who came here out of high school and knew they were on a three-year plan from the get-go. It's like, I'm going to go to Ohio State. I like it for many reasons, but my plan is go there, play for three years, play well, go to the league, has a high pick, and make a bunch of money. That was a business decision for those guys. Mm-hmm. But I, I do think the business decision discussion is a little starker for transfers. Jonah Jackson made a business decision. You know, It's like, oh, I could try to put up Rutgers film and have people pay attention to me, or I can go to Ohio State. I also want to win, but now Jonah Jackson – might be a second or third round pick. Greg Strudrawa yeah. on the call on Wednesday was talking about how he thinks Jonah Jackson can play center in the NFL. Um, Jonah Jackson made a business decision. I do think for any players, and I think I think transfers, it's just you're that much closer to the league. You're that much closer to the money. So it becomes even more about the business than it does about 
your major and what you think of campus and whether your parents can come see you play. I do think Ohio State is set up. They're set up in the recruiting too and the, all the other stuff. But the business decision part of it, like I'm trying to be a pro. I want to go somewhere for a year or two to a place that can make me a pro. I think they are as set up as any program to successfully get guys to do that in the transfer portal. Do you agree with that idea? Yeah, that's what I was saying before. I mean, I just feel like there's in, – in any given year, the underlying foundation of the program, if, if, for, if for whatever reason you have a hiccup and there's a quarterback missing, most of the years there's still going to be a Big Ten championship team under there if you can just go find the quarterback to help them get there. So I think Ohio State should always be a destination, assuming – now, again, that hole has to be there. I think that immediate hole of, of being able to step in right away and play has to be there. I don't know that it looks like a, a very favorable destination for transfers for the next couple, three years, just because of what they're lining up here now between Miller and Stroud and then leading right into McCord. I mean, the one thing is it's like you don't want to have to – you don't want to be a quarterback transfer place. You want to be a elite quarterback recruit place and then plug in a quarterback transfer if you're desperate right. like they were with Justin Fields. But I do think – to the point of like, hey, this transfer quarterback worked out. Will they get more transfer quarterbacks? It's like, they hope not. <laughs> like you said, Steven, at the start, it's like, well, this is Kyle McCord. This is not about like yeah. what guy do we have to plug in three years from now because something didn't work out with the high school recruits. This continues on the business decision path of Justin Fields. Two questions on this topic. First one from the 440. Lots of buzz about moving the 2020 season to the spring. If that happens, would underclassmen like Justin Fields, Sean Wade, and Wyatt Davis play spring ball or just sit out and prepare for the 2021 draft? And then Tyler Shoemaker asked, if college football gets moved to the spring, what percent chance do you give Justin Fields and other elite guys to just sit out and prepare for the draft? Nathan, I think – let me say this first as a caveat before we try to answer this hypothetical, which uh-huh. maybe will never happen. I think if college football is moved to the spring, I think the NFL draft yeah. will adjust. So it's not like the NFL draft. If there's college football in the spring, they're not going to have the combine in February. And if there's college football in the spring, they're not going to have the draft in April, like the week before the Ohio State-Michigan game. So on some level, I mean, the NFL and college footballs are enough partners in this. It's a free development league for the NFL. The NFL is not going to be like, well, sorry, dudes. I think it would be much more a scenario where it's like, all right, if you have a college football season that is perhaps shortened and played, let's say, in March, April, and May, then I think you might have a June combine and a July draft. And I know that affects OTAs and other things for the NFL, but I don't think we can operate under the assumption that if there's a gigantic shift in the college football schedule, that the NFL calendar would stay exactly the same. So I wanted to put that out there. Nathan, like, what do you think of the whole thing? Well, I guess, first of all, I'm, I'm just highly skeptical that this will happen anyway, just because I think even a shortened season in the spring, followed then by either a full or shortened season in the fall, um, man, that really starts to become tough when you start talking about um, athlete uh, wellness and, and, and physical things and and all those things i just i'm really skeptical that it would get to that point so let me ask this i'm going to interrupt you you don't think that they could play a competitive spring football season in the window that spring football practice normally takes place 
and and have the wear and tear on the players not be so far and above what they were going through anyway with practice that it could make sense. You're skeptical about the whole idea of a college football season in the spring. I'm skeptical. Yeah, I am. I'm skeptical about having, you know, getting everything also partially just because of what that probably means, what's still going on with the virus at that point, but like having a preseason that gets them ready to play in the spring. And then you would be, so then you'd end in April, which you'd have to start up again in July or, or whatever. It, it, I don't, it just seems like a really compressed time. It also, you know, people for years have, have, have pushed back against the idea of adding even one more round to the playoffs, partially because they don't want to extend the season and have that get to be too many games for players. And now you're talking about even for one year, jamming all these games into one calendar year. I'm just skeptical of that. Um, yes. that, that so let's interrupt there, Stephen. What, what's your how skeptical are you about even the idea of a spring football season, or do you find it very feasible? Uh, I'm skeptical as well. That's a because then are we turning around and having a, another fall season that in, in a couple of months, or are we expecting those players who you know played in the spring in a spring season to turn around and go now to the NFL and play in the fall after the wear and tear of whatever the season was from the spring? Like, is it, there's too many moving parts that have to happen here if you're just going to have this much of a hiccup and then expect guys to be able to turn around, whether it means they're coming back to the college level or moving up a step where things get more gruesome on your body and expecting them to be physically okay with that. I think that's part of the reason I'm skeptical is what, how do you work things out next after that spring season? I will cite here uh, Brett McMurphy, every listener's favorite sports reporter, uh, for Watch Stadium. He tweeted on Wednesday afternoon – that And he's good at this. He does this better than anybody. He polls athletic directors and gets them to answer. In a poll of 130 uh, football subdivision ADs, 99% of ADs believe there will be a college football season. 75% think it will be delayed. So basically everyone thinks they'll play. 75% think it will be delayed. So how will it be delayed? 61% think they would start in October or November. 14% think they would start the following spring. So that is not a huge population of ADs predicting a spring football season. I think in the end, I mean, if you get to that point, the fall already didn't happen. I think spring is more likely than none because of money. And I think the points that you guys bring up are valid. I think they would rather find a way to squeeze in an eight-game conference season for everybody and a shortened playoff. I mean, I think I – I don't know. I don't know. I, I just think they would, they would find a way to do it, put it in the spring football hole, play in March, April, and May, and that they would prefer that far better than nothing. And then if that means uh, a June draft um, and then those guys report – for NFL training camp in July, I, I don't think that's impossible. Do you think it would also then have to be followed by an alteration to the, the 2021 schedule? Yeah. And not I think playing you'd be a full 12 for game. a while. Why? You start to I mean, talk about high, college players playing. So if you're talking about an eight-game conference season, I assume with, with – let's say it's even no conference championship game, and then – a, a, a game playoff or some kind of bowl structure still, which I don't even know if that would be feasible because if, if you'd be able to play all these bowl games in no the bowls. spring. 
but, to a straight right. playoff, no bowls. So even if it's just eight games, and you're talking about for teams that advance to a conference championship or a conference championship bowl game, you start talking about upwards of 21, 22. If you make the playoffs, 23, 24 games, that starts to get a little bit uh, – In a calendar just, year, you mean. In a calendar yeah. year, yeah. Yeah. Um, it's stretching into the next January, I suppose. But, I mean, you're still – I guess you're still within a, a less than 365-day period, right? You're talking about March to January. You're talking about a 10-month period of playing like 24 – 20 even 22 23 college football games that just seems like again in this era i'm not even talking about what what i care about i'm just talking about in in the mentality of this era where um where athlete um wellness and 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 protecting their well-being is a priority and should be i think should be a priority then especially for people who are paid only at the level of their scholarship i think that becomes a really difficult enterprise to, to try to pack all of that football into that short amount of time, especially because again, they aren't, I know it, it helps the athletic department as a whole, but it doesn't really pay off for them and could be detrimental for them in the long run. I, so you think, so quick answer, if the choice is spring football season or no football season, which one would you bet would be what would actually happen? Steven. There'll be a spring football season because what you just named money. Okay. Nathan. I think it would be the spring, but I think that I think they would do it, but I think it would also have to alter 2021 in some way. Okay. I think they would do it too. And if I think you could, if you had to push back the start of the season till October, you know, and play from October to February instead of September to yeah. January. I mean, I think there's things you could do. I, I, I think it with, with enough stuff that's been out there about how many athletic departments are just live and die with their football revenue. I think, I just think they will do almost anything um, to play a football season. But I, and now to get back to the actual questions, I guess we don't even have to answer it. It <laughs> wouldn't be a choice that they would have to make. I mean, it would be, you know, in the end, it wouldn't be like it would. It would just be a question of. I, I don't know how much of a difference there would be of like, okay, Justin Fields sat out the spring football season because he wanted to be ready for the, the June or July draft. Well, he could just sit out this season anyway to get ready for the draft. Right. I mean, Nick Bosa got hurt and then didn't come back. I don't know that it's that much different of an equation for a guy. I mean, I guess it's the point you guys are talking about wear and tear, but if you're going down the road of would they just sit out a season to get ready for the draft, you can ask that question about elite players now and well, they the, play. Well, yeah, the, what the, the genesis of this question is what is happening, which is players will occasionally ditch their afterthought bowl games to yeah. to to get ready for the draft. So a loss. Any if in a world where maybe you're playing all eight conference games and that's it, would any loss would a guy decide who we all know is going to be a first round draft pick just decide, okay, we lost. We're definitely not going to win a national championship. I'm gone. But nobody does that now. Right. And I that's mean, what I'm saying. Like I feel like people what what people are giving up now doesn't have a lot of value. I mean, it doesn't have, you know, you're you're skipping the the Poulain Weed Eater Bowl. I know that doesn't exist anymore, but I just like to say it. Like you're 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 skipping lesser bowls to go get ready because you to to avoid potential injury with no upside for you and to go get ready for professional opportunities um considering <sighs> you are not compensated um for what you get from the bowl on your way out. So I, that decision honestly, I don't really have a problem with. 
I, I think what to give up an entire season has a whole lot more value. I also think guys just aren't going to want to go that long without playing competitive football. I think you at that point you'd be talking about going from um, last January for some players or into December for Justin Fields and going until in your in this scenario where you're pushing back NFL stuff to fit in a spring season. You're talking about going over 18 months at that point potentially without really playing competitive football other than the little bit you got this spring. I don't think guys are going to necessarily want to go that long. I think they're going to see enough value in playing the whole season, getting to showcase themselves. Um, I don't think the injury risk is enough to potentially dissuade them from that. I think they'll still see value, especially if they, if you're also pushing back the NFL stuff and clearing that out. So they still get to, to fully prepare for their NFL opportunity after that. All right. So they'll play. From the 206, hey, Doug, I just finished listening to Friday's pod. When you're sitting in the University of Washington Stadium, you are looking out over Lake Washington. Puget Sound is 15 miles to the west. So I wanted to make that uh, Pacific Northwest geographical correction to um, the podcast from a couple days ago when I was talking about how cool I thought it was to see Ohio State play Washington in that stadium and look at Puget Sound. It's not Puget Sound, so I appreciate uh, – someone taking the time to correct on that um, because we always want to be as correct as we can on this podcast. This question could be a podcast unto itself, um, but I think it's also a little bit of a circular topic. So I was going to save it. Instead, we'll dive in from the 361. Has Ryan Day's more family-friendly approach to running a program made Ohio State a greater draw than it was under Urban Meyer? Obviously, he has the recruiting apparatus that Urban built, but could Ryan's softer tone resonate more with kids today? It takes a lot of trust to convince a kid to commit, and no one is convincing more elite kids to trust him than Day and his staff. That's from the 361. Nathan, Kerry Combs kind of talked about this to some degree on Wednesday, did he not? He did. Uh, He was kind of effusive in his uh, praise of what Ryan Day said. I'm trying to go back into my notes and find it. Um, but, But sort of talking about how um, you know, obviously he was here under Urban Meyer. Urban Meyer was highly invested in recruiting. It, you know, they felt like recruiting was a major 365 day influence under Urban Day or Urban Meyer. Sorry, but that Ryan Day has kind of a different take on it. And um, um, I'm trying to find the exact quote. I wish I had been a little bit more prepared. That would make for uh, a better podcast. Well, we'll write about it. We'll, we're going to write about uh, it. We, we will follow yeah. up more. But yeah, just. Um, but just him talking about how that there's there's a feel that he has with the players. He can he sees a connection with with the players and their families that were when Ryan Day sits down. He was talking about the um, what he called the circle of care, and we'll, we'll write some more about that. But just how it goes into things beyond football, starts talking about which I suppose is also right an extension of what Urban Meyer did as well. So as we've talked about before, I think there's a lot of that Ryan Day kind of borrowed from that era and which makes perfect sense considering how much success there was, but also putting his personality and his spin in it. And I think the only, that's the only way that was going to work because it has to be genuine. If people didn't feel like he believed it, it it wouldn't be coming across in those conversations. I feel like those connections are obviously paying off as we're seeing in in the the pileup that they have going on in recruiting right now. Well, I'll throw in the caveat that every time a a coaching change is made, you always highlight the differences in the two of them. It's going from a, a uh, tough guy to a player's coach. We know that happens all the time. I do think Ryan Day is somewhere in between Urban Meyer and Jim Tressel and sort of his the way the way he has about him. Um, what he has is the Urban Meyer recruiting apparatus. What he absorbed is the Urban Meyer recruiting attitude. But I think he's a little 
softer. He's a little more like Tress, I think, just maybe in the way he relates to guys. Um, Urban just really pushed you. Now, Urban also had a real connection with guys. But Urban was always like the coolest guy in the room. Urban could be intimidating at times. I mean, Urban won three national championships and recruited as successfully as anybody in the history of college football. But I think Ryan at the moment seems that he does have the ability to take all the best of what Urban did with the relentless nature of the recruiting, with the commitment to it, with the apparatus and the structure that is in place, with the national uh, approach to it while also focusing on Ohio. He certainly inherited that national approach far more than Trust did. Uh, and in this day and day, day and age, you need that. But he, he's just a little softer. And again, I mean, sometimes it depends on the kind of kid, right? There's no one-size-fits-all approach to recruiting. But I can see how Ryan Day's way of going about his, his day is appealing. And so, you know, the minute that Ryan Day gets the eighth best recruiting class in the country instead of the second best recruiting class in the country, we'll all say, man, he's not as tough as Urban. He's not pushing hard enough or whatever. But for the moment, I, I think there's something to it. I thought there was something to it when I read the texture question even before Kerry Combs talked about it today. Um, I think Ryan Day, what he has done most successfully so far is take all the best of what Urban Meyer left him, but also do a very good job of making it his own. So he's combined sort of the best of Urban and the best of himself, and the result is somehow, believe it or not, like Ohio State being even a little better than it was before because he kept all the best of Urban. But I, I think there's – I think the texture – is on to something with this. Um, and I think, I think anybody listening to this who likes Ohio State just understands what we're talking about with that, just the way that Ryan is. From the 937, who's your favorite sports commentator? I loved Brent Musburger because his voice is what Buckeye games sounded like when I was growing up. I thought there was something missing from the games when he stopped doing them. But ever since Gus Johnson has been the main guy, I think Gus is my favorite now. My answer, of course, although he's not a play-by-play guy, is Joel Klatt. Steven, who's your favorite sports commentator? Gus Johnson. I think if Gus Johnson was a play-by-play to somebody's life, they'd be the greatest man that ever walked the planet. So Gus Johnson would 100%. Can I say this about Gus? Gus, to me, fits better on basketball than he does on football. Yeah, because it, it's, it's so spur of the moment while with football, it's, oh, my God, and then you got to find who did it and go, Bob Smith did it, unless it's somebody, you know, that we all, that is just a household name, like when Chase Young was going off against Wisconsin. But I think he works better in the March Madness environment when everybody's already amped up and he's like the perfect cherry on top of a, a, milk, a milkshake. I, I think Gus is like, Gus to me is like a big dunk and a huge three-pointer. I, yeah. I feel like sometimes with Gus, it's like, you know, oh, what a devastating hit. Holy yeah. who's second down and 10. And it's like, yeah. okay, well, I mean, that was a, that was a, that was a great play, but then, okay. Now you threw an 11 yard pass to the tight end. You got a first down anyway. I mean, it's just yeah. football. There's more like when you hit a three pointer, it's points. Yeah. When you make a dunk, it's points. Like you accomplish the greatest thing you can accomplish on that possession, which is scoring. And just, and Gus is a great guy to celebrate that. I do feel like, and we don't listen to a lot of games live. We're at the game, but sometimes I almost feel like Gus's intensity is is almost too much because sometimes it's just an incomplete pass, man. Um, Nathan, where are you on Gus, and where who's your favorite announcer? I love Gus, but I do think 
maybe like 10% of the time you should pick his spots better. Like just pull back a little bit, but then that you're taking out the essence of Gus. So maybe that doesn't work. I, I don't know. Um, my favorite of all time is, is Jack Buck. And that's from growing up listening to crackly radio um, baseball. I can't I believe what I like, just saw. <laughs> uh, I, it's so many great Jack Buck memories from just being a little kid, but um, for football, the one that jumped on my mind and I didn't even, it was interesting when you, when you, gave us this question because I hadn't really considered it. And for some reason, football wise, the first name that pops in my head is Al Michaels. And I don't know if that's because Monday night football is maybe what, what I would most consistently watch, or I guess now Sunday night football is what I would most cons- consistently watch um, or, or, or something uh, in recent years, just because I tend to be busy on Sundays. But like, I, I could just hear him like the way that he like draws out like an, an emotional moment, the way it, describing what just happened, you know, Someone loses the ball. Like I could just tell, like hear this. This that was a terrible Michael's impression. But like I could I, just his way of calling a football game is very prominent in my head. I don't really even know why, but I just and I think that's almost like the best you could say about an announcer. Sometimes is that he he does a great job, but doesn't really call attention to him. I think he's always been very good at just sort of like like bleeding into the walls a little bit and describing what's going on without being in your face about it. I actually thought that Al Michaels impression was pretty good. Actually, it did sound. It got like a Al little Michaels. bit too much. There was more of an accent on there there needed to be, and I don't even know what accent it's supposed to be. It's Al Michaels. He doesn't really have one, but anyway. Uh, Stephen, was there any doubt in your mind that when we asked Nathan for his favorite announcer, it would be a 90-year-old baseball announcer? <laughs> it's a oh, dead yeah, baseball yeah. announcer. <laughs> that, that, that'll, that's that's the cherry on top for you, the fact that it's a dead baseball. Let me I tell you see, about yeah. back in my day. This back in 1984 with his yeah. transistor radio on the back porch, listen to Jack Buck call Cardinals games. So, Stephen, Stephen, what year were you born? 94. Okay. You're eight years old when Jack Buck died, so. Yeah. And I like Jack Buck. Um, I mean, Keith Jackson, I mean, as people love Brent, I mean, I don't know that anyone could ever match Keith Jackson. And and maybe that's not fair by me because you're sort of making the point, Nathan, of like, well, you like guys who sort of don't make it about themselves. I mean, rumbling, bumbling, stumbling or whatever. I mean, like Keith Jackson, like Keith Jackson, it was about Keith Jackson, but he was so perfect. It felt like for football to some degree. I I, I apologize to the texture because I want to give you credit and – I can't find your text, but I know you asked it, and we meant to talk about it on a previous pod. I do think Fowler and Herbie are really good. They're growing I, on me. Chris Fowler is definitely growing on me. And I think 100%. the combo matters a lot. And I know commentator, you normally mean play-by-play guy. I think Chris Spielman is fantastic. I miss him on college football. He does mostly NFL now. I think Spielman is unbelievable. But the, the, another person had asked, what we, there was a rumor about Fowler and Herbstreit going to Monday Night Football. Nathan, we didn't talk about that, did we? We didn't know. What do we – I mean, Herbie and Fowler are so college football to me, it would be hard a little bit for me to wrap my head around them on Monday Night Football. Herbie especially is so ingrained with college football, mm-hmm. which is a credit to him. that He's like part of the fabric of the sport. I don't – as good as they are, I'm not sure I would want to hear them on Monday Night Football. What do you guys think? I, I, it doesn't make sense to me necessarily because I feel like there is a difference between college and NFL, and I feel like their expertise is the college game, and the guys who I think have worked the best at the NFL are NFL guys. I mean, I think Chris Collinsworth does a pretty good job as an analyst. I think Tony Romo does a really great job as an analyst. I think you know, yes, um, Phil, Sim, Phil Sims. I mean, I think those guys tend to be NFL guys. I think that I would want NFL guys – um, 
real NFL guys doing my NFL broadcast. So that's just me. I'm all for, you know, trying new things, but it's got to make sense. And Kirk Herbstreit in the NFL doesn't make sense to me because he doesn't have a correlation there. While, like, you're just, he is college football. The man was on the college football game before they discontinued it. And he's ingrained in that. I don't really, there's no correlation with him at the pro level. Like, there is with a Tony Romo. Yeah, I, I, I'll keep him here. I really like Fowler. Fowler does a lot of tennis, too. And I think Fowler's really good on tennis, which is a weird thing to say. But, um, and you know, like, I, I, uh, I do think Gus and Joel are good. I will be curious if Urban, ever winds up as like a game analyst like a heavy game analyst because he's been so good in the studio i i wonder what urban would be like potentially if he was ever doing like the prime time color for a college football game i think his breakdown would be really interesting but i don't know if he like who do you pair him with that's the thing yeah i mean i i don't know like bland i don't know bland play-by-play guy x but um yeah, I'd be curious. I just think I think Urban's really yeah. good at this yeah. stuff. So I'd be curious to see how he fits with that. Um, quick drafting. So again, we're recording this Wednesday. We're getting it up late Wednesday because we have the uh, assistant coach interviews on Wednesday morning. The NFL draft starts Thursday. If you are interested in our NFL draft takes as they relate to Ohio State, listen to last week's Big Wednesday podcast. We delved into that there. Um, I don't want this to be old by the time you listen to it. Some of you will be listening to this after the first round of the draft. We will have draft reaction on Friday morning. We'll come back and talk about what happened in the first round, what happened with Chase Young and Jeff Okuda. Did J.K. Dobbins go in the first round? I was looking up some stuff about other Big Ten guys, right, who might be first-round picks. There's some Clemson guys that, you know, are going to wind up going in the first round. Isaiah Simmons, A.J. Terrell, T. Higgins. That'll be, you know, very curious to see how that goes. We want to see how many LSU guys end up going in the first round because I think there was maybe for people who weren't LSU fans some perception this year that, like, Joe Burrow just went there and lifted them up. And it's like, by the way, LSU is going to have, like, seven first-round picks. So LSU was ridiculously talented. So we will wrap up the first round on Friday. Quick question on this. I don't even know if anyone has a specific answer on this. I'll start off with mine. What do you think is the best team fit for Jeff Okuda? I don't know. I do think that I don't think he's going to get picked third because I think that Lions, as I've just messed around with mock drafts and read more stuff, I think the Lions have to mortgage that pick and let yeah. the Chargers and the Dolphins fight for it. And the Chargers and the Dolphins, Dolphins are at five, Chargers are at six. They're both taking quarterbacks. I think you say, if you like your guy, come get your guy. So my guess is that Okuda ends up going fifth or sixth to the Lions after the Lions trade down. If I had to guess right now, there's a lot of weird smoke with Miami. I think the Chargers are going to go to three and go get Tua to make sure the Dolphins aren't going to get him, and that Okuda ends up going sixth to Detroit. Do you guys have any thoughts on Jeff Okuda in the draft? When I wrote a piece that kind of laid out the potential scenarios for him, that was what I said was probably the best thing for him and the Lions both was I think it'll it'll cost him a little bit in his guaranteed rookie contract, I guess, whatever, moving from third to fifth or whatever, sixth. But I think wherever – I think he'll still be there for the Lions when they 
draft again. And then he'll be playing on a better team because they're going to have additional draft picks to build with. Uh, I think that might be the best fit for him just because there's not a lot of teams that could potentially do that to get him and, and covet him and be able to put him in a position right away where they need him. And then also in the process of getting him, be mortgaging, leveraging that into other picks. Um, there is also some smoke out there about Miami or Detroit also trading off a three because somebody wants to move up and take a tackle. But I assume that that's something they're putting out there to try to get even more teams involved. Yeah. Um, do we think in the end, I saw somebody reported that uh, Ron Rivera and Chase Young had a conversation. Uh, Steven, I mean, there's been a minor amount of talk of whether the Redskins would take a quarterback at number two. I know Michael Rosenberg from Sports Illustrated wrote a big column about how he thinks the Redskins should take a quarterback. Um, and it's just interesting how Chase and Dwayne Haskins and Terry McLaurin are all kind of wrapped up in this. Nathan, I know you also have written about that from that perspective. Steven, are, are you just assuming Chase is to the Redskins? Would you be shocked if something different happens? I would be shocked if something different happens at, the, at this point. It's, it, it's the no-brainer decision here. You, you, you take the guy who's probably going to be a Hall of Fame edge rusher at number two, when, especially when the option at quarterback is a guy who you're not necessarily sure about their health. This, I'd be shocked if he's not taking number two by the rescue tomorrow. And it's funny. I saw, I just, it always happens this time of year when you have national people diving in on the guys that you've covered for every snap of their college career. And like somebody had a big headline. I think that was like, Chase Young might be better than the Boses. It was like, yeah, I know. He might be better. Yeah. I know. I mean, I would, it's like, I said that 18 months ago. I mean, it's like, it's just like news to people. Like the Boses are unbelievable. Nick Bosa like dragged the 49ers to the Super Bowl last year. And I think Chase might be better. Um, so I think that's what's going to happen. I think I think Chase too. I think Okuda after Alliance trade down. Here's the thing I did say. Um, I did a piece about five Buckeyes that might fit the Browns. If Okuda slides, if Okuda slides, um, it's not the Browns' plan at ten. I, I think they would jump on him at ten. He is at a premium position. He's a premium player, and I think the if you could pair Denzel Ward and Jeff Okuda as two Ohio State cornerbacks as the starting corners for the Browns, they're completely different as players. Denzel's smaller. Denzel's faster. Okuda is bigger and more physical, but you could cover every kind of receiver in the league with those two guys. The Browns could not pass on that. So um, I don't think that's going to happen. But if I'd, I'd be surprised if he's still there at 10, just because yeah. I think there's teams. I mean, the Jacksonville, where they draft, they really need corner help. And I think there's also a position where there's some people that are right behind the Browns at 10 who would maybe even trade up to get him at that mm -hmm. point. The, the issue is if there's – Three quarterbacks that go early, and if there's a tackle run, yeah. um, if there's a, if the tackles mm -hmm. really go nuts, and you have four tackles in the first nine picks, then somebody's got to fall, um, and it might be Okuda. I think there's a better chance that Okuda falls than Isaiah Simmons falls. And some people thought there was a chance that Isaiah Simmons could get to ten. I think someone is just could be like, this guy's too bonkers. We can't pass on that. There is some reporting that maybe some people think Okuda, there's C.J. Henderson is maybe a better corner prospect than Okuda, which I think is a mistake. I think Okuda is going to be an absolute freaking stud. Um, so I, I don't think it'll happen. I think it'll happen Detroit at five or six. But if you could, if you could be the team that could catch a falling Jeff Okuda, I think you'd be in great shape. Um, Nathan, you did a quick story on this. Players can wear number zero now. Is that correct? That is correct. Who, this is a question from the 614. This is out of nowhere. Who's most likely to wear zero? 
on the current team? Like, did they say what position group would be assigned to that zero, Nathan? Um, I don't, I I assume it's going to be the same people who can wear single digits. Um, and I think it, see, I think an opportunity was missed here. I think zero should be worn only by players wearing, weighing 300 pounds or more. I think that zero should be stretched as wide as possible. Um, so I think, I think it should be, I think the rule, I think Dewan Jones should wear zero. Oh yeah. I I don't know. No, I think I think it's a Vincent Mack should wear zero, and the reason to, should be because nobody ever catches. This is how many catches I'm going to give up this year. Oh God, Damon Arnett would have been a killer yes. zero. He'd have been a beautiful zero. <laughs> wow, that's a really good one to think about. I'm, now that'll I'm be looking a fight. at you, Le- I'm looking at you, Legend Cavazos. Oh my rabbit. God, I'm looking but then at everybody, you. Everybody gets to look at the big fat zero you are as you're chasing the guy who just burned you. <laughs> Listen, it's a double-edged sword. Your corner, you got to live up to your trash talk. Let's do this. I know the the number one jersey at Michigan is a thing for Michigan receivers that, like, you you elevate yourself. There's a tradition of the number one receiver jersey at Michigan. Let's get Ohio State to start a zero cornerback tradition. So they guard each other every year. Yeah, my zero is going to wipe out their one. Um. I like that. I was going to maybe say Jack Sawyer could be the first zero for Ohio State that like you put it on a, a defensive end coming in and like he can like zero out the quarterback or something. But I am here for for corners wearing zero. I think there's an opportunity there for Ohio State. We'll have to get the message to Ryan Day about that. Um, I think you can work for receivers too. Like you're trying, the quarterback's trying to hit him right in the middle of the zero. Yeah. No, I think that's good. I think there's a lot of good options here. I kind of thought it was kind of weird and stupid at first, but now I'm kind of into it. Couldn't it be also one of those kind of special things at Ohio State, too, depending on what kind of lettering, numbering they're using? It can kind of look like a block block O if they do it right. Oh, dang. All right. We got to – we really got to – we got to work on this idea. Uh, I want to end with this topic before we get to our assistant coaches in the second half of the pod. Um, I texted about this today, um, and I I think it – I do think it's interesting. The two safety look for Ohio State. They played single high safety last year. That came with the Greg Madison, Jeff Halfley defense. They'd always played two safeties before almost all the time. But this cover one, cover three look with the corners where they mixed between man and zone, but they had the slot corner uh, as a starting position, and it's a corner. It's not a safety coming down to play over the slot receiver. You're absolutely putting a cornerback, a guy who is recruited a corner who has cornerback skills, that's the, another guy on the field. So you're playing three corners and one safety, and that's what you're doing. Um, I, I have figured that that will affect how Ohio State recruits. And so when Kerry Combs, when I asked him about secondary recruiting uh, on the conference call Wednesday, he was talking about they really value versatility. And I was sort of reading that as, man, you really want safeties who maybe can play corner because – we're only going to play one safety. I, we have a couple texters who are really insistent that they think Ohio State is going to go back to a two-safety look. And we did see that against Clemson. We talked about that a lot. Everybody knows that. They had Jordan Fuller and Josh Proctor on the field a lot uh, against Clemson, that it was something different than they did the rest of the year. So I want to go through a couple of these texts, and we'll talk about it a little bit. It has to be a good thing to hit when we get back to football in the fall, hopefully. In the 614. I could be wrong because I'm just a normal fan, but I feel like you guys are harping too much on only having one starting safety. And to be fair, that's me. I'm, I'm the one harping on it. We only have one true season of seeing what Day does with his defense, and in that one year, 
one of his coordinators has now left. I'm not saying we'll go back to two safeties for sure, but three things are making me lean toward the idea of being more multiple on the back end. One, they're recruiting a lot of safety corner combos. Two, Day has admitted he wasn't going to tell anyone what type of defense they would run in 2019 until it was on tape. Number three, Combs is a new hire on defense. He uh, got his master's degree in football, and he said in Tennessee they ran multiple schemes. I think that's a really smart, involved text from that listener in the 614. From the 602, I was having a conversation with this person today. He says they're going to run a two-safety defense, single high look left with Halfley. Combs isn't going to run a defense. He's not 100% invested in it. And I was texting back and forth with that person. From the 480, do you see any chance that with the way they're recruiting and Combs' background, they back off on the one high safety look? I know Day said it was his system and he's sticking with it, but what percent chance would you give that Combs shifts to something he's more comfortable with? And from the 517, Doug, is it realistic to think that Combs will switch back to a two safety look? People are interested in this. My impression, and I'll lay it down first for you guys, is that Ryan Day made it clear this is his defense. They wouldn't change their offensive look just because they hired a new coordinator. And I thought Ryan Day was saying, when we go hire a new coordinator, this is who we are as a defense. You don't get to come in and run your system. You run the Ohio State defensive system. And so they hired Kerry Combs back, but Ryan Day is the boss. He gets to say what they do. And yes, Kerry Combs was here when they ran two safeties in the past, but that's because back then that's what the boss wanted to do. I don't think Kerry Combs gets to decide. And when I I took Kerry Combs saying, hey, in Tennessee, we were really multiple to mean he's multiple. He's cool with adjusting to a one safety look. So I still think it'll be one safety as the go-to. I'm, I understand all these points and they have shaken me a little bit from my certainty about it, but Nathan, we'll start with you. How do you take all this in, one safety versus two safeties, and what you expect? Well, can we just go right to what Kerry Combs said today? Because I think it influences the answer to the question right now. Um, I can't remember who asked the question. It might have been former Buckeye Talk or uh, Bill Landis. But somebody asked him about how much they got to install this spring. And he said, I didn't have a great hope of, this is a quote, I didn't have a great hope of over-installation, primarily because I'm coming in to a team that was number one in the that was the number one defense in the country. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. Um, what these guys have been doing was fantastic. I do think I'm, I was going to make some differences and changes to modifications. Absolutely. But, um, and that's the end of the quote, but I, I think what that to me means is the structure is there. They've recruited to that structure and they're going to keep going forward with that structure. However, I think what is, what makes it interesting is you're also are bringing in Kerry Combs for a reason. You're bringing in a guy with an NFL background for a reason. They can mix that up when they need to, but I, I still fully expect the base of this to be the, the cover one three corner thing that we saw last year. That seems to be what Ryan day wants his program to be about that. that that's what they're going to build on defense for the long term is something out of that structure. I think that's what he, I mean, he said it, his defensive coordinators, whether that was Halfley, whether that was Combs, whether that was Greg Madison, they've all said it. This seems to be the structure that they want to be kind of in concrete going forward. Steven, do you have any strong thoughts either way? Yeah. I kind of want to play devil's advocate a little bit to that. I, I do think this is what Ryan Day wants to do. But also, if if we just look at that defensive back last year, room last year, three of their four def- best defensive backs were all cornerbacks. That's John Wade in the slot, and then Jeffrey Okuda and Damon on the outside. And then your best safety with, was jo- Jordan Fuller. You're not taking Sean Wade off of the field to put on Josh Proctor. 
They only that only really happened because in situations against Clemson. Well, part of that is because Sean Wade got ejected from the game. I I think I wouldn't be surprised if Ryan Day is is willing to budge a little bit from that stern want single high safety look, just depending on what that room looks like and what's available to him. His best options just so happen to be the type of defense he also wanted to play last year. What if that's not the case a couple of years for especially with the way that Kerry Combs is recruiting right now? Maybe you're in a situation where you know, your best options are two safeties over three cornerbacks just because of how guys are developing. Yeah, I think I disagree with that. I don't think they're going to pick their defense based on the players they have. Um, I think you you find schemes that you believe in, and I know they always talk about best 11, but I, I, I just don't think – so I don't think they're going to come off a slot corner. I, I don't think that makes sense to to – to not have that slot corner is basically like a starting spot. And so then the question becomes, are you playing a four, two, five, are you playing two linebackers, three mm-hmm. corners and two safeties? And I don't think in the big 10, they think they want to be a four, two, five. Cause they think no. people are going to run on you. Yeah. And that they, you'd rather mm-hmm. have, instead of a second safety, you have that B word that outside linebacker position that you believe in that guy as an athlete and as a cover guy, but you still have him down in the box and they'd rather have Pete Warner in the box than having a second safety on the field that you have to bring down in the box and run support sometimes. So uh, the, the thing is, I think we talked about this before the Clemson game and then it happened. It was like the idea of like a two safety look for Clemson because you don't want just one guy back there against Trevor Lawrence. You want to have a little more help in your secondary. That is not what it's like in the big 10. There are not quarterbacks who scare you in the big 10. Yeah. So we'll lock up our three corners in coverage and have one safety. And then we'll have the three linebackers, and dare you to run on us. I think until they play quarterbacks, you've got now clearly they have it in their pocket because they brought it out against Trevor Lawrence. I think when they're as long as they're not playing an elite NFL quarterback and they're not playing NFL receivers, and most weeks in the Big Ten you're not, I think they'll stick with this look. And I don't think it's gonna be I think it's gonna be Kerry Combs with his multiple background now adapting to what Ryan Day wants to do. And so um I believe that I, I am intrigued by the, what the texture pointed out of like, well, Ryan day sort of didn't tell us a year ago. Why would he tell us now? Maybe they are going to change it and they just aren't going to say it. I just will say, I still think it will be heavy one safety, two safeties when you need it, but I wouldn't expect it to differ it to differ much from last year. Okay. A lot to get to still a lot covered already. We appreciate you guys listening quick break and then we'll be right back to talk assistant coaches on Buckeye Talk. All right, back on Buckeye Talk. Uh, I just ordered a pizza for my family. Um, I can eat pizza every day. Could you guys eat pizza every day? I could eat pizza every day. No. No. I don't think I have a meal that I can eat every day. I think I get tired of it. I could eat it every day, but I would have to get away from like standard pizza at some point. I couldn't just do pepperoni and sausage every day at some point you'd have to throw in the uh, barbecue chicken buffalo chicken um something a little bit more out of the ordinary just to just to change it up i could eat the ordinary uh i stink and love it i can't help it i love it okay so here's i want to get to this first because this is very important and near and dear to my heart before we get to the assistant coach discussion that we're going to have uh i hate puzzles i hate puzzles and 
We got a question from the 513 that said, my wife and I have been doing some jigsaw puzzles as a quarantine activity. While doing the puzzle, I look at the picture on the box. My wife does not. Am I cheating at puzzles? Steven, first of all, do you like puzzles, hate puzzles, or somewhere in between? Somewhere in between. I mean, I don't really I, – I haven't gotten that bored yet in the house, so like, they're fine. But, I'm, you know, I guess they're okay. I'm just somewhere in between at all. Nathan, love, hate, or in between on puzzles? Yeah, in between. I'm, I, I'll do them, but it's never my idea to do one. Steven, is looking at the box, the picture on the box, is that cheating at putting yes. together a puzzle? Yes. It takes away the fun of putting it together and figuring out what you're making. I, I will say the thing I disagree with there is the idea of taking away the fun because there's not any fun to begin with with the puzzle. Oh. So you can't take fun away that isn't there. But you think looking at the box is cheating. Nathan is looking at the box cheating. No, I don't know how else you would do it i think it would be an incredibly frustrating exercise especially once you get up to the level of jigsaw puzzles that the people like adults are generally doing right i mean it's like they t intentionally make it like just like a bookshelf with like 20 different books that are of slightly the a slightly different color of tan or whatever and you're supposed to find the puzzle there and it's like or complete that puzzle and it all looks the same for a reason like if you don't have something to go by i don't even know how you even begin how you even start so I think it's like looking at the directions that like, I don't, right. it's right. like, it's like, how do you do this thing? It's like, you could just figure it out blindly on your own, or you could look at the directions, but here's where I am. And I understand that in a time of quarantine, in a time of pandemic, we are all forced to do crazy things. I do not understand recreational activities that feel like homework. And I will throw puzzles into that. I will throw crossword puzzles into that. I do not understand the fun of something that really is designed to be a chore. So we, I hate puzzles so much that we have a joke at my house. And I can't remember what the thing was. Oh, oh there was a friend. I don't think they listen to this podcast, so it's okay. There was a, a family friend that they went to family camp and the husband in the family didn't want to go to family camp because he doesn't like going to the bathroom out in the woods. And so it was like torture for him. And they didn't have to go to the bathroom like in the actual woods, but like out in the, you know, the rustic campsite. Mm -hmm. So family camp for him was torture. And we were trying to figure out like, what would my torturous camp be like? And it would be ranch dressing puzzle camp where you had to nothing but ranch dressing to eat and you had to do puzzles all the time. I hate, I hate puzzles. Aren't puzzles homework? It's like we had a thing, we cut it up, now put it back together. Homework, right, Stephen? That's homework. It's like brain food, though. It's, you know. My brain is fine. I don't <laughs> need to exercise my brain. So nothing that involves strategy? No, that is, is different. You are leading me into my next point, which is we got a question about from the 216. My wife, my wife and I have been playing quite a few board game, trivia game, card games since we've been quarantined. What are your favorites? 
Also, in terms of assistance, when did Corey Dennis egg Doug's house? That's thanks from Bob. So that's a separate topic. You can go back to another podcast for that. Nathan, you bring up the crucial difference to me. Board games, card games, things like that. Now trivia can seem like homework too. It's like, do you know the answer? Raise your hand. And I like trivia. Card games and board games have strategy. What is the strategy of a puzzle? There's not strategy. It's like, I know what piece is supposed to go here. Can I find it in this pile of a thousand things? I enjoy the strategy part of things. I don't enjoy the tediousness of things like puzzles and crossword puzzles. Do you understand the difference there? I do. And I would, I would take a board game over a puzzle eight days a week. And I know you can't play a board game by yourself. You are staunchly on board games. Steven, board game or puzzle? Oh, if I had to choose, it would be a board game because there's a competitive aspect to that. Yes. If you're not going to use, if you don't use the box and now you're using your brain, because especially if you have a puzzle that's got a lot of sky pieces, which means it's a lot of blue, it's a lot of trial and error. And the other thing is, you know what I hate about puzzles? Cooperation. I do not want to cooperate with people. Be like, hey, do you have a. Do you have any, uh, like a green bush piece over there on that side of the table? Oh, my God. I, it's unbelievable. So I put it out very quickly. Uh, I didn't put it out to the tech subscribers, which is what I normally do. I don't really use Twitter much anymore. I just use Twitter for stupid jokes. Quick Twitter poll. I just said jigsaw puzzles. Hate them, love them, indifferent to them, or really hate them. And I did get a response from somebody who said, oh, my God, I voted for hate them before I realized really hate them was a category. Indifferent to them, 48%. Love them, 30%. Hate, 15 Really hate, 7 So 22% combined total hate. About half the people are indifferent, which might be the correct reaction to a puzzle, which is like there's a puzzle in my closet, but I would never – what am I going to do? I would never do a puzzle unless there was, I don't know, a pandemic when you were like, I don't know, quarantined in your house for three months. So I guess there are people doing that, right? You guys are at the point where you would maybe consider a puzzle because we're literally trapped in our house by an invisible virus. My significant other enjoys puzzles. She does them with her family. It's like a big thing from her family. It was passed down. Although my parents do puzzles too, and I want no part of them really. But I did a puzzle with her. Um, a couple weeks ago. It's still on our uh, coffee table, actually. I'm not sure why it hasn't been disassembled. But I would I say I did it with her. I started it with her. And then when I got distracted by other less tedious things, she went ahead and finished it. You mean you like know, dis- I- distracted by anything in life? Because anything in life kind is of. less tedious than a puzzle. Steven, yes. I admire you jumping in right off the bat to say, no, you still would not do a freaking puzzle. Yeah, no, I have this thing called a PlayStation 4. And so I don't <laughs> need to do things like puzzles and board games because I live in 2020 where we play video games. Yeah, you know what else I don't do? I don't, I don't knock a hoop down the street with a stick. <laughs> Like, I, like, that is a great point, Steven. It's like, there was a time, right? Caveman, yeah. if you give a caveman a puzzle, the caveman would be like, oh, because uh, that, I mean, that caveman, frankly, needs to exercise his brain. Yeah, so that's like, the best that, thing they have technology over there. But, but this no. now, in current times, a puzzle? My no. God, find something else to do with yourself. Yeah. There was a time it, when, like, a paddle with a ball on a string was, was like, an Xbox. Like, that was, like, 
Christmas 365 yeah. days a year if you were a kid with one of those things. Now I, it's I, like as long as our internet, as long as our internet and our electricity is fine. Like people used to play things, jacks. So. I don't really know what jacks are, but people used to play them. And no offense to people who were alive then. It's not it's not your fault you didn't have a PlayStation 4. But my God, play Stratego now. I mean, play find something. It would be an interesting experiment. Put your phone I, up. I now want to go. I want to go to Steven's apartment and like cut off the power to your apartment, cut oh, off the no, internet, do do and that. place a box, a puzzle box on your front step, and see <laughs> how many days of no power and no internet would it take before you put a puzzle together. Um, pick one board game puzzle. Stare into space. That Twitter poll: board game fifty percent, stare into space thirty-two percent. Puzzle, 18%. So still, I respect a strong margin for doing nothing over doing a freaking puzzle. And if you love puzzles and you're offended by this, I don't care because I'm reminding you that it's homework for free. Stop doing them. Okay. I did this list for our tech subscribers. There are 35 assistant coaches that have been assistant coaches for Ohio State football between 2005 and 2019, my time period covering the Buckeyes. And you may have noticed by now, I only talk about my time period covering the the Buckeyes because I don't want to have to do any research backwards. So I ranked all 35 assistants that I personally have covered. But as part of my pledge to be optimistic, upbeat Doug during the pandemic, I'm not going to give the podcast audience the bottom 25. If you subscribe to be a texter off of this podcast and text me and say, give me the bottom 25, I'll send them to you. But the rest of you are getting the top 10. And we are going to talk about what it means to be a great assistant coach. If you want to be a tech subscriber, 614-350-3315. But I put out to the text audience, who is the best assistant coach in your time as as an Ohio State fan there was an overwhelming winner, uh, Stephen and Nathan. I will tell you, there was an overwhelming winner of the best assistant coach of our texters. Who do you think it was, Stephen? Your guess first. I think Kerry Combs won because he's also, I think, a fan favorite. Nathan, your guess. I will say Larry Johnson. Larry Johnson was the overwhelming winner, yeah. and I That's will reveal my top ten throughout this, or I'll do it at the end. I'm going to make you get, I'm going to tease you a little bit with it. Larry Johnson, the clear winner with 23 votes. Second, Mark D'Antonio with 15 votes. Now, Mark D'Antonio is out the per outside the purview of my ranking because he was gone before I got here. But there are a lot of people who appreciate the way he ran that defense for the 2002 national champions. I think that's a really smart vote for Mark D'Antonio. Um, Tom Herman got eight. A lot of love for Tom Herman. Kerry Combs got six. Ryan Day as an assistant got five. Luke Fickle got eight also, tied with Tom Herman. So Larry Johnson won, Mark D'Antonio two. Herman and Fickle tied uh, for third. Kerry Combs fifth, Ryan Day sixth. So we're going to get into a lot of Fickle responses. I'll tell you where Fickle ranked on my list. But we want to talk about Larry Johnson first. And I want to start with this that I thought was an interesting question that's not related exactly to the ranking. This is Tammy from the 440 who might be new to sending us texts. So welcome, Tammy. Thanks for the question. 
I'm curious how Larry Johnson continues to relate so unbelievably well to the young recruits. At 68, he won't be at Ohio State forever. Sad face emoji. So Crystal Ball, who you would predict as a replacement for Larry Johnson. Stephen, we'll start with the first part of the question for you. Why do you think it is Larry Johnson at 68 years of age has tremendous relationships with 20-year-olds? I asked Tyreek Smith about this after the Big Ten championship game, just like why this is working so well. He said because he's like a father figure at this point. He doesn't, like, you know, he's, he's, a, he's like a father. He's literally old enough to be the dad of everybody in that room. Wrong. Maybe even the great, even the grandfather of some of Correct. those guys. He's so the that's, I'm yeah. old enough to be their dad. I'm 46. Yeah. I'm old enough to be their dad. That's true. It's true. And that's, he's I not. think, what it is. Well, yeah, he might be. No, I'm saying he's not anyone's father that plays college oh, football. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I could yeah. be. I could be the father of a college football player. I could sit Hunter. in hands. I, you think I would birth a punter? If Doug birthed the college football player, what punter. position would he play? Water boy? Um, continue, Steven. So you're so Tyreek is saying how Larry gets it done. Yeah, it's 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 he's like a, he's a grandfather, but also once they get a chance to work with him for the first time at a at a camp and see exactly why Nick Bosa and Joey Bosa are doing so well in the NFL, those two things combined, you get a map, you get you know, you're just in awe of all that, and you know he, he's. It'll, he talked about it on the call on Wednesday. He, he understands that he has a brand at this point. He is, kids come here to play for Larry Johnson. It, just as badly as some kids come here because it's the Ohio State. There's a lot of kids who come here because simply because Larry Johnson is here. And that's why he's able to relate. It's the grandfather effect, but also I'm going to show you exactly why Nick Bosa was the defensive rookie of the year this year. Uh, Nathan, t- this isn't exactly part of Tammy's question, but there is going to be a day when Larry Johnson is no longer an assistant coach at Ohio State. How much of a loss do you think is that gonna, that's going to be when that day comes? I think it's huge. I mean, not just for w- what he does developing guys once they're here, but for helping Ohio State acquire some of these guys in the first place. I know acquire is a word that people probably don't have a, a good taste for when it comes to recruiting, but I mean, that's essentially what you're doing. I mean, you're going out, you're finding talent and you're convincing those guys to come here. Um, and Kerry Combs made mention of it today, just, you know, watching uh, Larry Johnson and the way that he works families. I don't mean works in a pejorative way or in a, in a, uh, like a skeevy way. I just mean like the, the relationships that he builds with families and the, the links that he'll go to like, kind of, you know, make that connection. And uh, he's seen it in real time now at, at two different uh, stints. And that's why those guys come here. It's, 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 it's partially the relationship and partially the proven track record of turning those guys into some of the best defensive players in football. So um, I think it's going to be a massive loss. And I think that one of her questions was, you know, who, who you think could replace him. And I would imagine that they'll have to try to go do what they did with Larry Johnson in the first place, right? Is try to find someone who maybe already is kind of an established um, presence of, of that kind has um, a, a real already kind of an approven um, acumen for doing that kind of recruiting and for developing players to that level. Um, I, I think it would be, it won't be the Corey Dennis route. I think it'll be finding someone who is um, more of a, can, can stand on his own a little bit with the, the resume he's already put together. So I have an answer that I came up with in the last two minutes for who is going to replace Larry Johnson. And now I think this is absolutely going to happen. And it's kind of a cop out um, because it just means you have to replace them somewhere else. I think Al Washington's the next defensive line coach for Ohio state. Al Washington played defensive tackle um, as a player at Boston college. 
He was the defensive line coach uh, at Boston College and at Cincinnati before he went to Michigan and moved to linebackers and then was a linebackers coach for Ohio State. These guys move all around, right? I mean, like, just because you played somewhere doesn't mean you have to coach there. Mike Vrabel, when he was hired by Luke Fickle initially, when Luke Fickle took over on an interim basis, Luke Fickle was the linebackers coach, became the head coach. Luke Fickle had one spot on his staff. He hires his best friend, Mike Vrabel, who's a career defensive lineman, Mike Vrabel coaches the linebackers in 2011. Urban Meyer gets here. Mike Vrabel becomes the defensive line coach. Luke Fickle goes back to linebackers. These guys move around. Stan Drayton was a longtime running backs coach. He came to Ohio State under Trestle, coached receivers for a year. Then Urban came. He wound up going back to running backs. So I actually think it almost makes me want to ask if, like, is Larry Johnson giving Al Washington some technique tutorials about how he teaches? hand fighting and defensive line techniques to these guys, because I, maybe I'm wrong on this. It just maybe feels like to me, it would be easier to go out and find a linebackers coach than it would be to find the kind yep. of technician that you would need on the defensive line to succeed at this level. And Ohio state has had great defensive line coaches, Jim Haycock, when he was the defensive coordinator here, a great defensive line coach. Um, then you go to Mike Rabel and then you go to Larry Johnson. I mean, I, here I am saying Luke Fickle's a linebacker's coach. Luke Fickle was a nose guard. So Luke Fickle played defensive line and became a linebacker's coach. So guys can move around, but I feel like def the defensive line coach at Ohio State is so important, it might make more sense to slide Al and then hire a linebacker rather than just keep Al at linebacker and try to hire a defensive line coach. Are you guys in total agreement with me or no? Uh, I don't know about total. It makes sense. Sure. No, your I, only choice was total agreement or no. <laughs> Just like, do you hate puzzles or not? So it, it is going to be a loss. Um, and I thought that was a good question to start us off. Let's see what people said about Larry Johnson. From the 216, they vote for Larry Johnson. Not losing a beat from Vrabel, from Mike Vrabel, the uh, Washington, D.C., Maryland, Virginia recruiting, the development of all the linemen, not just the Boses. Also, don't underestimate the importance of him being African-American. Few coaches with his longevity who are, all, who, have, who are African-American. It's a bit of a crime that he never got a chance as defensive coordinator, plus his Penn State work was on top. Um, I think over time, Ohio State's football staff has not been as diverse as it could be. Larry Johnson makes a difference. Uh, it, it was played out very upfront with the Tyreek Smith recruitment. The Tyreek Smith was interested – um, in playing for an African-American head coach and James Franklin. And he was interested in playing at Penn State partly because of that. And then he, Larry Johnson went in and kind of closed that deal. So um, I think Ohio State is behind the times in, in, in terms of, of Ohio State not having an African-American head football coach yet. Um, but I think that is a, a, an important point to make. I think Ohio State staff could be even more diverse than it is. But Larry Johnson, in just a multitude of ways, is just absolutely crucial to what Ohio State does. From the 4-4-3, I've been an Ohio State fan since 2014. No doubt I'm going with Larry Johnson, an absolute legend. Not only is he an elite recruiter and coach, he's been with Ohio State for six seasons. He's produced top-end NFL talent, the Bosa brothers and Chase, but guys like Jalen Holmes, Tyquan Lewis, and Sam Hubbard as well. Simply one of the best assistant coaches in the country. From the 7-3-4, he leveled the playing field with the SEC by getting elite defensive linemen with speed to come play here. Because of this, Ohio State is capable of beating the SEC and Clemson in the playoff. 
That is a really good point. From the 614, Larry Johnson, don't think it's particularly close. The best defensive line coach of all time. Uh, let's see. From the 937, the best assistants in my lifetime would go Larry Johnson, Brian Hartline, Kerry Combs. For Larry Johnson, it's almost entirely because of what his players have done in the league. Uh, and he has developed great NFL players. Larry Johnson, his ability to coach the very talented kid, kids and raise their talent level is unparalleled. Uh, add to that his track record with recruiting, and he is the best. Larry Johnson from the 513, the work he's done is incredible. Three top three draft picks, and the worst players that play for him still get drafted in the first four rounds. Uh, outstanding. I'd choose to have him over any assistant right now, even with how great of a job Brian Hartline has done. From the 740, to me, the only right answer is Larry Johnson. I'm 38 years old, and I've been a Buckeye fan since I could walk. Maybe a little recency bias, but Larry Johnson is as solid as they come. Great recruiter, elite position coach, elite man, and father figure. Those are our Larry Johnson answers. Nathan, why did you guess that Larry Johnson would be number one? And actually, that's not my question. Nathan, would Larry Johnson be number one on your list of Ohio State's best assistant coaches right now in comparison with Kerry Combs, Tony Alford, Brian Hartline, all the guys on the staff? He would be number one on my list right now because he has the longest uninterrupted track record of both the recruiting side and the development side. I think Combs is close, obviously, because of what he's done with that secondary. But Johnson, just what he means to pretty much every facet of this program, I suppose, I guess you could say, besides the offense, but I'm sure that there have been instances where they needed to close on a guy on offense, and Larry Johnson was a part of that conversation in a way that not everybody on that defensive staff or maybe even on the offensive staff could be involved in that conversation. I just feel like he is the guy who is – his presence is in this program in a way – um, that that not every other assistant coach is. Steven, you said that you guessed that Kerry Combs would have been the choice of the Texters. Who would be your number one assistant on the staff right now, in your opinion? I would have picked Larry Johnson just because, to those points, when you look at the list of the guys he's gotten just in the past five, six recruiting classes, I mean, Jack Sawyer, Nick Bosa, Chase Young, Zach Harrison, Teron Vincent, that's all just just at Ohio State and outside. Obviously, Jack Sawyer's not here yet, but we all a lot of we all think that Zach Harrison's probably the next in line of great defensive ends here. And Teron Vincent, it's just about health at this point. If he can get on the field, he'll probably blossom as well as a former top twenty guy. So he's he can close on getting these top twenty five players, and then you know he takes that and he turns them into first round NFL draft picks who who aren't just you know decent NFL players. Like these are some of the best players in the NFL. Kerry Combs was chosen by six of the voters. Larry Johnson got 23 votes. Um, Combs was the second most among current assistants from the five, one, three, I picked Kerry Combs. I was growing up in Cincinnati when he was a high school coach going and watching him at Coleraine. Also, occasionally when he was at the Cincinnati, I obviously loved his energy and production at Ohio State, and I moved to Nashville just before he started coaching there. He's been an interesting person to watch that whole time. That is very interesting. Kerry Combs from the 330. He thinks Larry Johnson and Combs is a coin flip. I can't argue either of them getting the most out of their kids. Great recruiters, positions proven on the field. They get drafted highly. Uh, Those two are 1A and 1B, no matter who you would choose. From the 804, my favorites were Kerry Combs and Luke Fickle. Even on TV, you could sense a real connection between them and their guys. I love the passion uh, of Combs. 
Um, I, and I, I want to get into this a little bit sort of as we go through this. And I'm still not going to reveal my choice yet. If you're a texter, you guys already know. Uh, if, you're just a, if you're a listener and not a texter, you don't know my top 10 and who I, what guys I put order in. Nathan, as you evaluate a great assistant coach, just in the way that I did it, I think this guy is a little bit better than this guy. How do you fold coordinator duties into that? Would you value somebody who is a coordinator sort of automatically much higher than a guy who does not have coordinator responsibilities? Yes, I think the, the coordinator is more important and has more influence in the program overall than someone who is just a position coach. So, for instance, that's why as much as Brian Hartline has been successful with recruiting and developing in a very short amount of time, which is why you'd also probably put him behind Combs and Johnson and maybe even some other people. But he also is, you know, his duties are, are more specific just to that position right now. Whereas Combs, obviously, even Larry Johnson um, have, have duties that expand beyond that. They're, they're more involved with the entire, the entirety of the program. So I, th- I think you always have to include, um, you always have to put coordinators higher. Stephen, how would how would you balance that? I agree with I agree with that just because of what the responsibilities are right now. Brian Hartline's only responsibility is that room, and you know, going and getting the best guys he can that fit what they want to do offensively for Ohio State, and then developing them and finding the best six guys to put on the field. But there's not much more to it than that. He's just right now he's just a developer. He doesn't really have a I have a say in the actual offensive game plan past, you know, developing the guys in this room while, you know, the Kevin Wilson's of the world and Larry and Kerry Combs and Larry John, those guys do have a say in what their overall game plan is going to be for their side of the ball. And so you have to, just because they have more responsibility. So both of you guys said Larry Johnson for the best assistant coach on this staff right now, he is not a coordinator. He has never been a coordinator. But Kerry Combs hasn't been a coordinator yet. But they well, hired him. They hired him right. to be the defensive coordinator. So how? But I can't judge him yet on how he's been as a defensive coordinator. I think what separates Larry in that group is the he's gotten he's developed guys. So they're so vital to whatever the defensive game plan is that you can overlook the fact that he doesn't have the coordinator title. Brian Hartline hasn't done that yet. Like you know. The, the three guys that are top five, top three draft picks for, from Ohio State and Larry Johnson's positions were so vital to everything that was going on where he might not have an actual say in calling defensive schemes on a, on a Saturday basis, but those, everything is done with those guys in, in, in thought process when they're coming up with a defensive game plan that you can overlook the fact that he doesn't have the term defensive coordinator in his job description. Nathan, you said Kerry Combs hasn't done it yet, but they hired, they could have made Larry Johnson. Ryan Day could have made Larry Johnson the defensive coordinator. He didn't. Yeah. He hired Kerry Combs back from the NFL to become the defensive coordinator. Does that, is that a factor at all in comparing those two guys? Yeah, like I said, I, I think it's close that I, I'm giving Johnson the edge over Combs, and it was close. But, I, again, I can't judge Combs yet based on him being the defensive coordinator because I haven't really seen what he does as a defensive coordinator but my by, by, by this time next year it may be a different vote but I, i'd still say until you see how he actually performs as a defensive coordinator it, it's tough to give him like extra to, to factor that in too much into how you feel about him as the assistant on the staff 
And Nathan, I will say the same thing to you that I have said on this podcast many times before. If you are not going to judge a person on something they haven't done yet, get off this podcast. <laughs> you say that like I'm begging to be on this two and a half hour podcast <laughs> each week. Nathan's like, can I, can I please like, eat dinner? Oh, thanks. Can I, can I please have a meal? Um, Why did you say that six months ago? Yeah. Hey, uh, boss, is the podcast optional? Doug said something about kicking me off the podcast. Can I please accept that? Um, all right, I've been trying to like dance around. It's like I don't want to give away my list because oh, everyone's waiting with bated breath for my list. Nobody is waiting for bated breath with my list, and I'm gonna. I want to just talk. Here are my top ten. 2005 to 2019, my top 10 Ohio State assistants. Number 10, Joe Daniels, the quarterback's coach during the Trestle era, um, coached up Troy Smith, was heavily involved with the recruitment of Terrell Pryor, unfortunately got sick while Terrell Pryor was here. He eventually passed away from cancer. Um, tremendous old school quarterback's coach, and he was kind of a little bit like Larry Johnson, and he was a guy who was an older kind of grandfatherly type guy who really related to some of the younger guys. He's not. He's 10. Nine is Jim Haycock. Took over as a defensive coordinator after Mark D'Antonio left. Excellent, I think, underrated defensive coordinator. Haycock and Fickle were co-coordinators for the rest of that Trestle run. Um, just like a really solid football coach. Not flashy, loyal to Jim Trestle. I just like really solid. Eight, Daryl Hazel. Sharp guy. I was not surprised he had success as a head coach at Kent State. I was surprised he bombed at Purdue. Was the receivers coach during that heyday with Ted Ginn Jr. and Santonio Holmes and Anthony Gonzalez under Trestle. I think had a lot of Trestle qualities, really professional, really like just like put together, like senator-like guy. Um, I really thought he was going to be a really good head coach. He's a receivers coach with the Vikings in the NFL now, but the receiver success went back a lot to him, and he was just really sharp. And I, I just don't know. Nathan, you actually covered Daryl Hazel at Purdue, right? I did, yeah. What happened? What's your 30-second answer on why Daryl Hazel failed as a head coach in the Big Ten? The recruiting was poor, and I, I think it's a factor that he had not been a coordinator. I know he had been a head coach, but I just, I'm just i always hesitant when you're hiring someone who's never been a coordinator. Head coach but, who but, but, – go ahead. Who had success, yes, in the MAC, but it was also a, a very short window of success too. That wasn't really yeah. – the guys that he built into that program, it was it was a very um, – he really shot up quickly and, and Purdue grabbed him when he did. And I, I didn't think it was necessarily a bad hire at the time, partially because of his Ohio State connections. But really, I, we can go into all that. At the end of the day, they just didn't go get Big Ten football players. That's did, the end of the day. Steven, was Hazel the head coach when you were a student? Freshman year, yeah. And that was it. That was his one good year. And he got a Big Ten job off of that. Yep. He did right. exactly what you should do when you coach at Kent State. You have your one good year and you get out. I believe He's Jim Trestle was – sorry. I believe Jim Trestle was pretty involved as a um, – a what do I want to say? Like an advisor or, or helping Purdue make that decision. It's, uh, I, think, I think his influence was a, a factor in why Daryl Hazel got that job. It's always – it's interesting to me. I can remember there was, a, there was something – I think it might have been like when – Trestle might have been like at the Heisman ceremony with Troy or something. There was a time when like if Trestle missed a practice or something like Daryl Hazel ran the practice because he had that assistant head coach title, which is not the most meaningful title in the world. But I always think about he left to go be the Kent State head coach like right before all the stuff went down with Trestle and he lost his job. And and I always wonder if he had been around, is it for sure 
that Fickle would have been the interim head coach for that year. I think it's possible it might have been Hazel. He was held in that kind of high regard. And I very specifically remember way back in the day doing a story about future head coaches on Ohio State's staff under Trestle. And I wanted to write it about Fickle and Hazel. And like neither of them would really talk to me about it. I think I wrote it anyway, but they were clearly the two guys who had head coaching in their future. And like they both didn't want to talk about it because they both like didn't want to seem like they were trying to think about the future instead of doing their job. So it does make sense to me, I guess, Nathan, when you say he didn't recruit at Purdue at that level, you know, Jim Trestle was not the world's most dynamic recruiter. They recruited well still because they were Ohio state, but maybe if you take that sort of low key professional personality and you put it at a program that doesn't really have much of an inherent draw on its own, Right. Then maybe it's really hard to recruit. People at Purdue now, they want to go play for Brahms offense, right? They have something to sell. I mean, at Ohio State, you should always be able to attract Big Ten talent because you're Ohio State. Um, Whether you're getting a top five, top ten, whatever recruiting class is another thing, but you should always at least be getting Big Ten talent. But for years, every recruiting story, every every commitment that came to Purdue, it would be so-and-so chose Purdue over um, Akron and uh, Western Kentucky and somewhere else similar. You know what I mean? Like it was never, you were, they were never really beating out other big 10 programs. Not even just not upper echelon big 10 programs. I was saying it wasn't even that common for guys to pick Purdue over um, Iowa and Minnesota and uh, Indiana even like it was like, it was, it was seemed to be a lot of Mac schools and less that they were beating out. So I think that was ultimately that's the end of the undoing. I will say to be fair to Daryl, uh, the, the the commitments that Purdue has since made to 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 the football program were not made under the previous AD to Daryl, and I also think it's germane to the conversation we're having now. I, there were some uh, strictures in place when he was putting together his first staff um, that I think ended up being a problem. I think he didn't get to necessarily pick the guys that he wanted to fill out that staff uh, that he would have wanted in his heart to be his assistant coaches on that first staff and they never really recovered from that either. Great dude. I love Daryl Hazel when he was here. Um, just really, I just think he's a really good football coach. I'm surprised it didn't work. So he was number eight on my list. Number seven's Brian Hartline. Uh, Hartline comment from the three one Oh, um, watch out for Hartline. He's a meteor. That's someone talking about my list, but they really think Hartline is a riser. From the 650, Brian Hartline, I love seeing former players succeed and watching Hartline over the years has been a real treat. I love his knowledge and his passion. He's relatable to young guys without being sleazy. I think he's going to make an amazing offensive coordinator next and eventually a head coach at a smaller place. But for right now, I'm just enjoying him at Ohio State. He has made such an impact to me for a guy who was a two-year position coach to be seventh on this list out of 35 guys. You've got to be really special but Stephen I think everybody thinks Brian Hartline is kind of special yeah and it's part of it great players want to learn from guys who are who have been where they want to go and that's what this situation is right now Brian Hartline had a quality career at Ohio State he had a quality NFL career and now he's here as a head uh, here as a wide receivers coach who better for a guy like Julian Fleming whose next step is the NFL after all after college to learn from than the guy who has already been in, been in those shoes before. And so right now that's what he's benefiting from. And to your point of assistant coaches can move around sometimes and, you know, coach different, different, be in different position rooms. He's, he's, a, he's on the Larry Johnson path right now of I'm really good at coach, coaching this position. I'm really good at developing this position. I'm really good at recruiting this position. But I think the difference will be if 
say you know, he goes somewhere else where he's not coaching wide receivers, where if he's coaching running backs or coaching quarterbacks, can he still have that same type of impact? It's very interesting to me what he's going to do. It's funny, when we were on the conference call on Wednesday, he was talking about he had a seventh-month-old on his lap and his two-year-old was in the other room. Guys with young families, that's always kind of an issue. Sometimes if you're going to make a move, sometimes you want to make a move while they're young enough, like before they're in school. That's kind of a window to go sometimes and bounce around. Um, I, I don't know what he wants to do. He made a millions and millions of dollars in the NFL, so he doesn't need money. Not that any of these assistants these days need money because they're all overpaid. Um, this is his alma mater. So I, I don't know that he's going to like, I don't think he's going to hopscotch in the college game, but like, I don't know if, if, if Tony Elliott moves on at Clemson and Clemson asks, you know, tried to hire Brian Hartline to be the offensive coordinator and legitimately call the plays. I don't know if he'd jump for that or not. It feels like to me, it's more likely that he'd go be an NFL receivers coach and that he'd, he'd moved to the league first. Like Vrabel was here, wasn't a coordinator here, went to the Houston Texans and, and like made that jump before he became a head coach. I just, I don't know what's going to happen with Heartline, but Nathan, you know, in your year of being around here, how would you describe the impact that Brian Heartline has on Ohio State football? Well, I, I mean, just what he has done as far as recruiting alone, I think, is impressive. I mean, look at the the, the the four guys who came in this freshman. He's fallen up with at least two more highly rated guys for next year. And it, it says something that you're able to go out and, and get that kind of a glut of talent in back-to-back years because you have to connect with these people and convince them that there's going to be an opportunity there for them despite that you have to make them want the competition. You have to go out and find a certain kind of guy, I guess, in the first place. But then also, again, you have to have that genuine connection that um, of, of what you're building there. And um, so that alone, I think is, as, as, as obviously elevated the program as a whole. Um, number two, though, I think you've seen evidence of the development. I think you saw even the guys who were at the combine this year talked about how Heartline coming into the program, you know, his involvement with the program in any way, um, let alone becoming the receivers coach, I think they saw a as kind of a a marker in their time at Ohio State. They felt like they were better receivers from that point forward from just the things that they learned from him. Um, it just seems like, again, he's got the down-to-earth guy, but he's also got the professional experience. Um, there, there's a lot there in that package that he can offer to a potential recruit and to the guys that he brings in as far as just being someone that they believe knows what he's talking about and in the way that he can communicate it. They thought they got better coaching after Zach Smith left. What a shock. Um, That's not a fair shot. I mean, like, uh, I was surprised. Like, when all the Zach Smith stuff went down, I mean, off the field, I mean, all the tangential stuff with Zach Smith, I mean, fire away. But the guys who played for him were like, no, he was a good coach. Like, I don't know. I don't know. I'll take Brian Hartline, though, for sure. All right. Again, to recap my list, 10, Joe Daniels, 9, Jim Haycock, 8, Daryl Hazel, 7, Brian Hartline, 6 is Luke Fickle. And a lot of people pushed back and thought I had Luke Fickle too low. From the 513, Luke Fickle, not, I'd, not sure I'd put him number one on my list, but he's embarrassingly low on yours. He contributed to two successful errors. He bridged them during a wasted season. He brought values that stick and represent the best of Ohio State. Um, other than Day, who else on this list has a shot at becoming an Ohio State head coach in the future? Tom Herman, just based on how he runs Texas, doesn't fit Ohio State's values. Chris Ash sucked post-Ohio State. If Ryan Day is so high because he became head coach, then Fickle needs more credit for that too. Just his term of service, how long, well over a decade at Ohio State, he's way too low. From the 3-1-0, 
Without a ton of thought and research, I always loved Luke Fickle. Buckeye since the day he was born. I loved seeing him on the sidelines leading the D. Made me feel safe there. But there was a guy who played for Ohio State and bled Ohio State from the 224. Luke Fickle was a great assistant. I'm giving him the nod for longevity. Always felt like it was personal for Fickle. I think he may have been on the sideline even if he wasn't collecting a check. Doubtful, but it felt like it. Very passionate, and he wore it on his sleeve. Others have been better recruiters and probably better coaches, but Luke did it for a long time and did a really good job. Happy he's having success at Cincinnati. From the 585, has to be fickle. Did an admirable job taking over in crisis. Was a Buckeye through and through. The Silver Bullets were something special under his leadership, and he had a knack for that three-star or lower kid that they could make a big-time contributor. I definitely agree with that. 214. Luke Fickle sticks out as the best Ohio State assistant in my time as a fan, 2006 to the present. I think he was the glue that kept the Ohio State culture together into the Meyer era, and he should get more credit for not completely collapsing during the 2011 campaign where the world was stacked against him. He's a Buckeye to the core, and it shows in his actions every day. One more on Luke Fickle from the 614. Younger friend of the pod here. So I think you listed off most of the assistants that I remember, but I'm here to talk up Fickle more than where he was on your list. Again, he's six on my list. I didn't appreciate it as much at the time, but since he's left, in my mind, there's been a noticeable drop in linebacker play. It hasn't been bad, so to speak, but it's not what it was under Fick. Fick would always have that one or maybe even two linebackers that other teams genuinely feared. Dudes just running around looking to light someone up. It's not been that way since he's been gone. Lots of love for Luke Fickle. And the weird thing is, is that I love Luke Fickle. And so like nobody has to talk me into the idea that Luke Fickle was a good assistant coach at Ohio State. I just think the five guys ahead of him for their own reasons kind of deserve to be higher on the list. But here's the thing I want to ask because we got a lot of questions about this. Nathan. When you're ranking assistant coaches, how should the ability to be a head coach or the fact that you have gone on to be a head coach and were good at it or bad at it, how should that factor into the assessment of someone as an assistant? I think the head coaching presence or that uh, it's, it's kind of an indescribable quality in some ways. Um, it's one of those things where you, you sometimes identify it in guys or you look back and you say, oh, yeah, that guy had it. It was in that matter of time before he became a head coach. I think that sort of quality definitely is definitely plays into how highly you would rank guys. Like I think that's a quality I would describe to both Larry Johnson and Kerry Combs, even though neither even, one of them has been a college Even though coach. Larry Johnson is 68 and has never been a head coach? Exactly. So, you're right. But I also don't – I think there's there's – there's a quality in his personality that I think you either in terms of just kind of his, his presence, his, um, his, his, I don't know how to say it, just that, um, I don't know, it's kind of an indescribable quality. I don't know how to, so I can't describe it, but it's, it's, it's a, it's a charisma. And I think those, I think that charisma is important. But I think having that, bias. yeah, I don't, I don't know if I agree with that. I think, I think if he had the equality that that I think if he had that in him to be a head coach, I think he'd have been a head coach right about at this point in his career because he's. I think there are some guys who are really really good at what they do and they do that and they stick to it. He's one of those guys. Has anyone Fickle, asked him if he wants to be a head coach? I mean, he had the. I, he wanted to be the head coach at Penn State. Penn State, and they twice. didn't give him the job, and so he came to Ohio State. 
Yes, he wants to be a head coach. Okay. Well, he I, wanted to be the Penn State head coach. It doesn't, you know what I mean? Like it's different stages of life. I don't know. I, yeah, I don't. I don't know. But he's. He's he, not gonna be I don't a head know coach why he never point, left so Penn State to go be the head coach at Akron. That's that's right. a valid question. Right. Here's what I think, and we got a lot of questions about this because here's the thing about when when I'm asking for the greatest Ohio State assistants, people are saying people like Bo Schembechler, Lou Holtz, Larry Coker, Pete Carroll, Nick Saban, Lovey Smith, all of whom are very famous, successful head coaches who were one-time Ohio State assistants. But I don't think even Nick Saban would put himself on a list of the best Ohio State assistant coaches of all time. So I, I want to read some answers about some of these things. I'm an old guy from the 330, but through all the years, all the guys um, that were assistants, it's, it's, they're kind of remarking about the, the history. Pete Carroll was fired by Earl Bruce and replaced by Nick Saban the net, next year. Not too many people know that. Lou Holtz was here. Lovey Smith. It would be interesting to review all these guys who came through Columbus. That's from Jim. Someone suggested Lou Holtz from the 706. From the 706, Pete Carroll, Larry Coker. Both won national championships. Also from the 706, Nick Saban. Maybe this is just one person making the same point. I thought it was all these different people making different points. Um, Mark D'Antonio fits that. So, like, I don't think – that's not how I look at it because – on some level, I don't care how good of a head coach you might be when I'm evaluating you as an assistant. I think yeah. they are separate things. Steven, is that kind of what you were saying? Yeah, that's like that's a whole different conversation of here's a list of former House who's had the most successful career once they've left Ohio State. But that has nothing to do with the job they did when they were Ohio State assistant coaches, which is the question you're asking when you're saying who are the best assistant coaches in Ohio State, we're not talking about who went on to have success once they, you know, got a promotion elsewhere. We're asking within their time at Ohio State as an assistant coach, who was the best within that, that time period of, the, of doing that job? Not necessarily who's the most successful person in college football history who has also been an assistant coach at some point in their career at Ohio State. And beyond that, Nathan, you said that sort of innate quality that you look for, that that that, that person has that ability to be a head coach someday. Um, I think you can be an incredibly successful assistant coach and not possess that quality. Do you disagree with that? That no. like, oh, my God, that guy would probably be a disaster as a head coach, but he sure can run his room. Well, I, disaster might be strong, but no, I, I would say I, I see what you're saying. No, I don't disagree with that. I think that, that that's definitely possible. I've I've seen that at, at the at the basketball level, obviously, where guys have been at, at, at places for for decades and decades, kind of as the assistant to a head coach, like they kind of follow them from place to place. I mean, um, so no, it, it definitely happens. I'm just saying that there there usually is some kind of a again, it's it's that sort of it's a charisma. I don't know how to it, it, it might vary. It, from person to person, but there's a, there's a charisma that I feel like a, a, a successful head coach has or has to have, um, or even maybe sometimes a successful player has to have that I think would also be inherent in the best assistant coaches. So I think we're coming up. Fickle is six on my list and people thought that was too low. We're coming up on a guy who is charisma deficient. Chris Ash. <laughs> Chris Ash has no charisma. And anybody <laughs> who ever watched a Rutgers press conference can attest to that. 
I sat in Chris Ash's office and wrote a big story one year about how he wants to be a head coach. When he came to Ohio State, and he left Arkansas. He worked for Brett Bielema at Wisconsin, followed Bielema to Arkansas, left Arkansas to come be Urban Meyer's defensive coordinator starting in the 2014 season. And it's because he wanted to be a head coach and he wanted to come learn from Urban Meyer how to be a head coach. No charisma. I am not shocked that Chris Ash failed at Rutgers, but he is a really solid football guy. And that guy schemed up a defense in 2014. They went from a variety of coverages to basically this press man that Urban wanted to play. He wanted to find a coach who could run it. Chris Ash did that. He brought rugby tackling to Ohio State. Take your head out of it. He, he brought a lot of football things that changed Ohio State. So the reason I put him higher on the list than Luke Fickle, I dinged Luke Fickle for being a coordinator who at times was criticized. And, and he was usually the lesser of two coordinators most of the time. But in 2013, Everett Withers and Luke Fickle were co-coordinators, and their defense wasn't good enough. And Urban Meyer decided they needed a change. Everett Withers left. He kept Fickle, but he brought in Ash to run the defense. Fickle, I think, is better at relationships with his players. Fickle is a better recruiter, but I think what Chris Ash did scheming it up was so difference-making, and I don't know that Luke was ever at that point as a schemer, and when you are great at being a schemer, and the question I asked you guys earlier, how do you balance being a coordinator versus being it? If you are in your position room and you're not a coordinator and you are ridiculous at recruiting and ridiculous at relationships and you produce elite guys that make your program and your team win, like Larry Johnson, like Kerry Combs to this point, like Brian Hartline, you cannot be a coordinator and be absolutely as impactful as a coordinator. But a great coordinator, when you can add scheming it up on top of that, man, like you have to be so good in your room if you're not a coordinator. So that's why I put Ash ahead of Fickle, because I think in terms of scheming it up, Ash was more impactful at Ohio State, even though he wasn't here for as long of a time, obviously. From the 8-1-3, purely on results, I want to say Chris Ash took the poorest 2013 defense and turned it into a national championship level. 6-1-4, hard to choose between Chris Ash and Jeff Halfley. And they are very similar, but Ash was at least here two years. Both made huge, tangible, instant impacts in year one. When you can see the difference of a position coach from one season to the next, that is hard evidence. That's from Greg uh, C74. So that's why I went with Chris Ash and he stunk. I don't think he'll ever be a head coach again. I don't think he's cut out for it. Nathan, do you think that the fact that how should I have factored in the fact that Chris Ash stunk as a head coach and Luke has been really good at Cincinnati? Should that have mattered in my rating? Um, I suppose if it's like a, if it was a tiebreaker, maybe. But no, I, I don't think it should be. It should supersede what they actually accomplished as assistants. That should be at the end of the day. That should be the number one thing. If 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 they're if it if the if after that you're trying to make a tiebreaker, I suppose. But also what they go the what they do as head coaches elsewhere doesn't really reflect what they did as a, the assistant coach at Ohio State necessarily. So I don't know how big of a factor I would consider that. So Ash is five. Four for me is Tom Herman. Those are your two coordinators for the 2014 National Champion. A couple comments on Herman, who, again, got a lot of votes, a lot of respect from people. He got eight votes as the best assistant. 
From the 937, it's Tom Herman for me. After years of the slower trestle offense, it was a brush of fresh air to see a more high-powered attack in 2014. I also feel like Herman's loss was felt a decent amount in 15. Do you think he will be able to make it work at Texas? He's obviously a brilliant mind, but there seems to be much more to college football than that. I thought Tom would be really good. I knew Tom pretty well. I thought he'd be a really good head coach. Um, I think he might be missing a little bit of the what Day has in terms of relating to people. And again, when Gene Smith talks about it, he says the only per, only assistant Gene Smith ever had at Ohio State that he would have elevated to head coach straight up without having them go be a head coach somewhere else was Ryan Day. He would not, and that means he would not have done it with Tom Herman. I think there's a little bit of relatability that Ryan Day has over Tom Herman. But from the three six one. I think Tom Herman is the best assistant at Ohio State. He was able to prepare young quarterbacks to succeed in the face of great adversity and on the highest stage. I don't think Ohio State wins a title without him. That he got JT Barrett ready as a redshirt freshman to replace Braxton Miller after Braxton Miller got hurt and lead that program through a regular season that led them to a national title and that he was then able to get Cardale Jones ready for that three-game playoff run is bonkers. Bonkers good. Yeah. From the 919, it's Andy in Durham, North Carolina. Tom Herman's play calling during the 14 run for the national championship is a pinnacle for me. Um, so that he, and he goes into all the reasons why, but that I think is a great point. From the 408, Tom Herman, without him and how he handled the quarterbacks, no championship in 2014. Again, from the 408. I like Tom Herman a lot. I was happy to see him find some success at Houston. Can't believe Texas has been so underwhelming because I thought he was a perfect fit there. But at Ohio State, that's from the 813. From the 937, Herman, his value was made more apparent just due to the failure of Urban and the offensive coordinators after he left that led to a waste of 2015. That, as great as 2014 was for Herman, 15 might be the best argument because they couldn't run an offense without him. From the 614, I think Tom Herman is the baddest dude we ever had, and I'm pretty sure it's because he left after his best year. I still irrationally believe Ohio State would have been national champions the next year and maybe the year after that if he had stayed. I don't think that's irrational. 16 is irrational, but with what they had in 15, if they had run the offense the right way, I actually think, yes, if Tom Herman stays, they repeat. I don't think that's irrational at all. So Tom Herman is fourth on my list, really good, but Ryan Day is better. Ryan Day is third for me from the 614. Um, Larry Johnson and Mark D'Antonio are two and three for me, but Ryan Day has to be number one from the 415. Uh, I think it's got to be Ryan Day, even if you ignore what he's done since taking over as a full-time head coach and only look at his time as an assistant. Day completely resurrected the offensive identity of the Ohio State program. It's a really good point from the 602. This is Brett. I think Day has to be number one, given that he's Urban's hand-picked successor. I'd say Larry Johnson, two, Combs, three. Ryan Day, three for me. Does that seem right, Stephen? Does that seem low? I'll tell you Larry Johnson and Kerry Combs are the top two in some order, that Ryan Day is below them. Ryan Day, who is now the head coach, who had an undefeated regular season in year one, has the best recruiting class in the nation in year two, that he is not the number one assistant. Is it crazy that I didn't make Ryan Day number one? No, it's not crazy because – as an assistant, that's a two-year track record. And, yeah, one of those years with they broke all, broke all the records and JT Barrett was decent in his final year as Ohio State's quarterback. But as an assistant, he doesn't match up to the resume that Larry Johnson and Kerry Combs have. That's just as – now, he's probably – of the three, he was clearly the, the best equipped to be a head coach. But if we're talking about just as an assistant, 
those two, their resume is so much better than what he brought to the table as an Ohio State assistant. And some part of that is just because they were here longer and had an opportunity to really show what they can do within their own room as assistant coaches. He's really good. I'll tell you the one thing that I held against him, it's weird, and maybe this is wrong. Like, his high school quarterback recruiting was kind of a mess. Now, Justin Fields, he got Justin Fields here. Ryan Day recruited Justin Fields on his own and got him as a transfer from Georgia, and he miraculously solved all the problems. But Emory Jones was around, I think, committed before Ryan Day got here, but they kind of decided they didn't want him, and he ends, he ends up flipping to Florida, and Ohio State's fine with that. Ryan Day picks Matthew Baldwin, who is going to go to Colorado State, and we all wrote a ton about Matthew Baldwin as Ryan Day's guy, and then Matthew Baldwin transfers in a year, yeah. kind of out of nowhere. Dwan Mathis was the quarterback in the next class. He ends up decommitting when they get Justin Fields, and I get that. But, like, Ryan Day has done a ton right, and I think he was, he was a great recruiter. He locked down Garrett Wilson when things got sideways during the Zach Smith turmoil. Ryan Day made sure Garrett Wilson didn't leave this class. He's a really good recruiter. He's an excellent schemer. He's a super sharp offensive mind. He relates to his dudes. He missed a little bit. That the quarterback recruiting out of high school was a little hairy. And it was only two years that he was the assistant, but you know he wasn't bringing in five-star quarterback recruits out of high school. So that's one of the reasons that I kept him at three and not at one or two. Um, but Ryan Day's really good. And so I had Larry Johnson two, and I made Kerry Combs number one. And I've made you guys talk about that. My reason for putting Kerry Combs ahead of Larry Johnson in the end basically was that I think they're so similar they relate to players in different ways, but they both relate at the highest level. They both recruit at the highest level. They both develop at the highest level. And their personalities are so different. But Kerry Combs is now a coordinator. Larry Johnson isn't. So we haven't seen Kerry Combs scheme it up yet. But Ryan Day chose him to be the guy to scheme it up. And we know he can do everything else. So I dinged Luke and moved him down a little bit because I think he had some times when as a coordinator he wasn't successful. So like if their defense this year isn't good, then I might move Larry to number one because Kerry moves down because he didn't coordinate great. But that to me was the tiebreaker that, that Kerry Combs is now getting an opportunity for Ohio State that Larry Johnson has never gotten in his career. Nathan, what do you think of my rationale in the end? I understand why you did it, and I, like I said, I think you agree with me. It's a tough, it's a close call. So Very whatever close. criteria you come up with at the end of the day, um, I, I think yours is is as plausible as any. Um, uh, Stephen, any quibbles with me putting carry number one? No, because the the coordinator part is the perfect tiebreaker when you're talking about two guys who are this close. All right. So again, my list to recap, and if you were a texter, you'd have gotten this weeks ago. One, Kerry Combs, two, Larry Johnson, three, Ryan Day, four, Tom Herman, five, Chris Ash, six, Luke Fickle, seven, Brian Hartline, eight, Daryl Hazel, nine, Jim Haycock, 10, Joe Daniels. That's the best Ohio State assistant coaches from 2005 to 2019. A couple more assistant questions before we go. From the 415, who on the staff do you think is the rising young gun? You can't say Hartline because he's already here, um, but who's who's the, the, the hot guy? And it's like, Greg, it's not Greg Madison. He's old. It's not Larry Johnson. He's old. It's not Kerry Combs. He's kind of old. Um, it's probably not Stud. He's probably old enough. It's not Kevin Wilson. I mean, it's basically like Matt Barnes, Al Washington, or Corey Dennis. If you're not allowed yeah. to say 
Brian Hartline. I guess maybe you could say Tony Alford, but Nathan, who would you say of rising young star? We're not allowed to say Hartline? I mean, because we'd all say Hartline. So Hartline's Um, number one. Who's number two? Rising young star? Uh, All right, Stephen, we'll go to you. I guess Barnes, because Barnes is probably involved in this defensive back recruiting that's – that's going really well for them. I think, I think there's a lot he can probably learn from Kerry Combs in any number of ways. So I, I guess I would lean Matt Barnes. If you're talking about the younger guys, who do you say, Steven? And if you can't say Hartline, then it's clearly Al Washington because yep. Corey didn't have done anything yet. And Al Washington has at least, even if he hasn't necessarily landed, he's only landed one guy in his own position room, but he's been in, he's been in the conversations with some of the top linebackers in the country and you know, he's the only guy with any proven track record. So if it's not Hartline, it's clearly Al Washington, especially if we just if you just had a whole conversation about how he might be the guy who replaces Larry Johnson as, you know, the defensive line coach. I'm very curious to see what Al does next. I asked Al on the call about recruiting in year two compared to year one, and he gave a really good answer I'm going to write about, about sort of getting your feet under you and how much easier it is to re- recruit in year two. I want to see him go get somebody. I want to see him bring in a, a, the number one linebacker recruit in the country. I want to see him bring in the next Baron Browning. Um, but I think Al, I think Al might have something. I think Al, if he, if Larry is teaching him some stuff and he keeps his eyes open and his ears open, I, I think maybe Al can be the type of guy who's like Larry Johnson, but he does get the shot that Larry Johnson hasn't gotten as a coordinator, as a head coach, that maybe he can, he can take that next step. The follow-up from the 415, and this is going to be interesting. We don't have a does Ryan Day hire what who does Ryan Day hire next? Is it a young guy or an old guy? I the thing I want to ask Nathan is Greg Madison, I don't think is a long timer here, and I think Ryan Day sort of said that. You know, like I don't think he's gonna be around forever. I don't think Larry Johnson's gonna be around forever. I do think that when Madison and Johnson leave, they will want like another sort of old soul on that side of the ball. And I'll be very curious where Ryan Day goes with that. Or if you if they lose Madison and Johnson in the next couple of years, could they just hire two 30-year-old guys to replace them? And then you have Kerry Combs and you have Kevin Wilson or whatever, and you're fine. Well, it seems like he likes a balance, right? Like he, he seems to kind of pair off like uh, younger guys with older guys um, to, to the for the most part. They, they deviated from that a little bit with the, the defense now, bringing in Combs with Madison. But I think that's also, again, like you said, it may be in anticipation of Madison Scything out, and I could see them maybe go younger in that situation. I don't know, um, I, but I, I like the way he's done it with the mix. I think you're bringing in new ideas, but you also have the the veteran guys who um, have a long track record and have have a certain um, gravitas to them that they bring to a program. I think they bring in a young guy to replace Greg Madison, whatever he leaves. Because also, then your old guy is with the defensive backs, while your young guy young coordinator is with the Sam linebackers, which is where Greg Madison is most of the time anyway. Yeah. It's like Halfley was kind of like the younger guy and Madison was yeah. the old guy as a co-coordinator when they did that. Again, Kerry has white hair. He's not as old as he looks. Um, he's not Greg Madison's age, but I think that, I think that might be a good point that like that balance, I think you're both talking about balance. And I think that's, that is important to Ryan day as it obviously should be. Um, all right, so two kind of connected questions as we kind of wind this down a little bit. A lot of praise for Mark D'Antonio. People loved him. A lot of good comments about it, and everybody agrees. So, like, if you sent a comment about D'Antonio, I read it. I appreciate it. I think we all agree on that. 
He is what you would think Luke Fickle could be, but he ran that defense in 2002. He left such stability after he left that I think Mark Snyder took over and then it went to Haycock and then Fickle was around and Fickle was a bridge. But Fred Pugich was a guy who's been mentioned along the way. He helped create the silver bullets under Cooper, but D'Antonio was really important to keep that going. And then he showed what kind of really good head coach he could be. So I think we all acknowledge that Mark D'Antonio was special. And if I had covered Mark D'Antonio at all, maybe he'd be number one on my list. I don't know for sure what kind of re- recruiter he was. And in all this stuff, when I'm comparing, when I'm doing a list of people who are in the Trestle era and the urban era on the same list, the urban era recruiting is just so much better. It's hard not to lean towards those assistants because in this day and age, we would all say the number one thing an assistant has to do is recruit. So like the urban assistants out recruit the Trestle assistants. So it's hard to get away from that. But D'Antonio, I think is, is, is everything you want an assistant coach to be. And again, when you're talking about Ohio State wouldn't have won the national title in 14 without Herman. They might not have won it without Ash. They don't win it in 2002 without Mark D'Antonio. So all props to Mark D'Antonio. This will be our final question, though, because we've got to get out of here. From the 513, which of the current assistant coaches do you believe will still be here in three to five years? And from the 614, which assistants could you see leaving over the next five years and who could potentially replace them? So let's just play this game. In this game, Ryan Day is still the head coach in 2025 okay so we're coming up on the 20 season so 20 21 22 23 24 he's gone five seasons and now we're entering 2025 are these guys still around is carrie combs still here in 2025 steven yes or no yes nathan no why not um i think he goes and it becomes the head coach of cincinnati if luke fickle leaves I agree. Uh, I would say no. Al Washington, here in 2025. Nathan, yes or no? No. Steven? No. I'll say no. He's gone on to be a head coach somewhere. Mm-hmm. Larry Johnson, here in 2025. Steven? Yeah. Nathan? No. I'll say no. I don't think he's... I don't think he's, I don't think he's running out the door. No, but. I don't think he's going to retire in a year, but like five. I mean, he's mid-70s by then. I'm not sure. We could look it up. Bobby Bowden coached forever. I don't know how many assistants there are in their mid-70s. Maybe we should look it up. I don't think it's impossible, Stephen, but I would say no. Matt Barnes, Nathan. Uh, No. Stephen. No. No. All right. Believe it or not, I'm going to say yes on Matt Barnes because I think if he does this right – he absorbed a year of Halfley. He absorbs some Combs. And if he does it right, he'll he, position he, himself okay. for a bigger role when Combs leaves. Yeah, he can succeed Combs. I guess that's the one scenario I would see. I would just also, I mean, yeah. when you're you're the special teams coach and you're like the assistant, like I could just see him maybe taking a, a bigger assistant role somewhere else. I think he would be smarter to stick around here and absorb, absorb, absorb. Um, not impossible, your point, Nathan, but I think he would stay. Greg Madison, Nathan, here or no? No. Steven? No. No. I agree. I'll know. Corey Dennis, moving to the offensive side of the ball. Nathan, here in five years, yes or no? Yes. Steven? I would say no because the next step for him would, if he succeeds in this, he's probably trying to look for a job where he can be a coordinator and a play caller, and 
Ryan Day doesn't seem to want to give up those duties anytime soon. So no. I like that Steven's path for Corey Dennis not being here is because he's so successful. Um, I will I say no based on Corey Dennis not working out and him silently moving on to a worse job. It's just a prediction. Prove me wrong. I mean, I'll, I'd be happy to prove wrong, but I'm not going to avoid saying what I think. I'm not here just to kiss everybody's butt on the whole staff 100 days out of the year. I'm not going to do it. It's not a shot at him. Prove me wrong. Prove me wrong. But I'll tell you what, they, they don't have 10 assistant coaches on the staff right now who are all going to be head coaches. So I'll say no. Tony Alford, Steven. No. Steven, or Nathan, I mean. <laughs> no, I think he's looking for a head coaching job as well. Yeah. I'll say yes because he's looking for a head coaching job, but it hasn't happened yet. Kevin Wilson, about five years from now, it still wouldn't have happened yet. And he's like a co-coordinator offensively. Nathan, Kevin Wilson. No. Steven. No, for the same reason of, of Tony Offer, except he'll take any job. Kevin Wilson will go coach a middle school dodgeball yeah. team if he gets to be the head coach. So, yeah. no. Brian Hartline, Steven. No, I think he might head for the NFL. Nathan. I say yes. I'll say yes because he's the offensive coordinator. And yeah, Day and Day – has, Even if it's in name only. Well, and that Day has loosened it up and realizes I don't need to call every play. If I always call every play, I'm not going to keep the best guys. It's still my offense, but I don't need to be making every every call on second and seven. So, but I, I think it could. I, as much as I said, I think he could be, see him being an NFL receivers coach. I also could see that happening. Um, Greg Studrawa, Nathan. Yes. Steven. I don't know his age, but I'm going to say yes. Yeah, I'm going to go yes. Yeah, that's a hard one. I think he's recruited better. Uh, I don't know where else he's going to go. I think yeah. he kind of is at the spot that he's in. I think that's our only all three yeses for Greg Stoudrawa. So we mm -hmm. guarantee that Greg Stoudrawa will be here um, in five years. Nobody else is a guarantee. Who else got two yeses? Uh Brian Hartline. We said Hartline. Yeah. Hartline was the only other one who got two yeses. So we yeah, think yeah. there's going to be a turnover of eight of the ten guys, which would match up with what Urban did. I don't have the numbers, and I'm not going to look it up because we're running out of time. Um, but that's not a shot at anybody. That's just how the world works. Um, all right. Thanks to everybody who responded with um, all the comments about the assistant coaches. I thought this was an interesting discussion. Uh, we certainly enjoyed it. We certainly appreciate you guys listening to Buckeye Talk. Uh, we'll have something on Thursday. We'll have a draft recap on Friday. I'm pondering an executive decision of skipping the daily podcast on Thursday because it's the day of the draft. So my choices, so you guys vote. We just voted on that. We'll vote on this. I think our choices are no daily Thursday pod or a nonsense pod that has very little to do with football and is almost exclusively fast food. Steven, would you rather do nothing or nonsense? It would have to be nonsense because what else are we going to talk about? Oh, surprise, Chase Young. And no, I know. Jeffrey so do we <laughs> skip it or do we do nonsense? Or do we just take a day off and hope that two and a half hours of this thing let, got people through? I think we can skip it. Nathan, what's your vote? I serve at the pleasure of the president. <laughs> whatever, Whatever you choose. I'll be around. I'll be around. Let me yeah. put it that way. We'll I got nowhere to, else to go. Here's the thing. If we don't do the, a nonsense pod Thursday, we will get to the nonsense because yeah. we're going to run out of stuff. 
football-wise, talk about. I think we might take a break. If you don't see a daily pod in the, in the feed Thursday, it's not because your subscriber's feed broke. It's because it's the stinking draft, and we just couldn't get to it, and we want to be able to have a good reaction on Friday morning from the first round. So we'll see. I wouldn't hold your breath. So hopefully this got you through. This was super long as usual. If you want to be part of it, if you want to get stuff like my list of the best assistant coaches early and not have to wait for a podcast, and if you want to find out who the bottom 25 are, I'll send it to you if you're a new subscriber, 614-350-3315. We appreciate all the tech subscribers. We appreciate all our readers at cleveland.com, and we especially appreciate everybody listening right now. We love being part of your life during this tough time. Hang in there. Stay smart. Stay safe. For Nathan and Steven, I'm Doug. And that was Buckeye Talk. <laughs>